Welcome to Paddling Adventures Radio. I'm Sean Rowley, and with me is Derek Specht. Hey, hello. How's it going, Derek? I'm going great. Anything exciting happening? Well, this uh, this recording tonight is exciting. This is exciting for a couple of reasons. Number one is five years ago this month. I oh, think this yeah. week. So we I always start- forget anniversaries. We started. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Uh, we started putting together our very first episode. Yes. And our very first episode will be five years on, I think February, is it February 14th this year, I think. Is it? 14th or 15th. Yeah. You'll yeah. be flowers and a date <laughs> or something. Some wine or <laughs> scotch or something. Uh, but yes, today is a good day because we have somebody that uh, we've wanted on the show for a while. He's been on our, our list. Uh, welcome to the show, Frank Wolf. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, it's not a problem. Glad uh, we're able to get this all together and get you on here. Thank you for mm-hmm. being able to join us. We appreciate it. That's right, the magic of technology. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> yes, yes. you're over on you're over in what Vancouver, and we're yeah, in North Toronto Vancouver, area. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wow, I gotta like that. Eh? Over on the wet coast. Yeah. yeah it is pissing rain today. <laughs> oh. Indicate. Yeah. We're getting a little bit of snow. <laughs> yeah, there's snow up the hill in the mountain here behind me, Mount Seymour. But uh, down here, it's uh, it's like a tropical te- or it's like a temperate rainforest, not tropical. Nice and green and lush still year round down here. So, oh, you gotta like that. That means you're canoeing and kayaking and everything. Yeah, yeah. There's a good little local just downhill from where I live here. There's like a a local fun little. It's kind of like a the Seymour River has got kind of a grade three section up high on it, then kind of a grade four canyon in the middle, then kind of a nice grade two kind of cruiser run uh, at the lower section. So, um, yeah, just like literally uh, a five-minute drive down the hill is uh, this nice little river that runs out of the, the mountains. So Nice. And that goes, depending on the rain, if it's snowing and it's cold, then that river will dry up or not dry up, but be too low to paddle. And then, but then when the, uh, you know, usually it's like, you know, six seven eight degrees and raining that'll bring everything up into nice nice shape so yeah awesome because i know derek used to live out that way for a while and i used to live out on vancouver island i was in uh near victoria so i used to live in esquimalt up on souk up in the uh on the west coast of vancouver island and so nice, I, I, lovely area great yes. sea kayaking and stuff out there as well as absolutely white water as well yeah mm-hmm. but the constant rain was a bit of a pain because you know you get the you get the, the moss growing on your roof and so on it's like <laughs> it's just this constant rain throughout all it's the winter true. yeah yeah you, you got to be a rainy day person to love it out here for sure absolutely yeah. My heart's just bleeding for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> what I appreciated about, uh, and what you probably absolutely do too, is like uh, in the wintertime, I could uh, I could go ski at Mount Washington and in the morning and head down to the coast and go kayaking in the in the evening. And it was just this constant, like I was always out hiking and doing something, right? So mm-hmm. it's, and I, it was quite a culture shock when I moved to Ontario. It's like everybody grabs their pack of smokes and their two four and head off to the cottage for the weekend. And that's <laughs> life in Ontario. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. It was a bit of a culture shock for me. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I do, I love the West Coast, but I also do love Ontario, you know, Quebec, Manitoba, North Saskatchewan, this kind of endless kind of interlocking matrix of, of lakes and mm-hmm. rivers um, that kind of go, you know, forever and ever. So you can, you can basically, you can have mountains or you can have an endless lake resource, but you can't have both. So one yeah. thing we laugh about here is like canoe tripping, you know, if you want to kind of go forever and, and kind of link it up, you know, the traditional indigenous or voyageur style, then um, you got to go out to where you guys are to do that sort of thing. So exactly, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I always kind of spend a good chunk of my summer um, out East and then 
um, a lot of the rest of the year out here. So there's there's kind of uh, benefits and drawbacks to both kinds of terrain, depending what you're into, right? So, mm-hmm. so you're like one of those snowbirds who spend their time between Ontario and Florida, except you've sort of tilted it. You've tilted it it's, to it's Ontario right. and BC. <laughs> I'm COVID proof out here, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, but yeah, definitely. My I, my family since 1983, we've had a a cottage up in uh, up in uh, the Perry Sound area, kind of right across from Kilbear Provincial Park, Georgian Bay. Right. Yeah, and then um, yeah, so I, I kind of grew up in in Toronto and spent summers up there, and still go back there every year and spend a good chunk of time. Usually at the end of a say a you know a month or two month long canoe trip up north, I'll circle back and spend a month at the cottage and just kind of, uh, enjoy everything there. So, um, yeah, so kind of it, uh, it's, it's, I, it's still, I, I still spend a good, I need that kind of, you know, uh, freshwater fix, um, right. that you have out East in, in the, in the shield that, uh, that's not quite the same out here for sure. Here is definitely beautiful, like amazing ocean paddling and stuff like that. But on an ocean, you know, anywhere in the ocean can be accessed by a motorboat. And that that sort of thing. So you, you, there's never guaranteed peace on the ocean. Whereas uh, if you disappear into the the deep depths of the the little north or Nunavut or the Northwest Territories or, or northern Manitoba, you know you you're going to have peace. You're going to be you know you, you're most likely not going to see anyone for the time you're out there, which is kind of unique. It's such a vast uh, sprawl that you know you're pretty quickly away from any kind of contact you kind of are, are get thrown into that throwback era of what things used to be like which, right. which uh, the ocean doesn't allow that right because you can get anywhere by by uh by motorized vehicle in, in on the ocean so yeah, except for this cool. year we did a trip up we did the inside passage uh squamish up to um prince rupert in may we kayak and uh there was it was desolate it was almost like uh basically i had a trip I was going to do a 400 kilometer ski trip up on Ellesmere, but then when COVID shut down Nunavut, I kind of quickly scrambled to um, do uh, do something. And of course, just leaving out my backyard was the easiest. Um, we went fully self-contained with 30 days. So we were basically uh, self-isolating, self-quarantining. We didn't go into any communities because they weren't welcoming people and just kind right. of, and literally there was, we saw like three other people we spoke to in, in 27 days, um, and that was it. It was quiet. It was almost like pre, pre-indigenous contact, you know, pre-human contact coast, because even the people weren't out. So it's kind of it was kind of a special way to see the coast in that kind of very quiet. There's no cruise ships. The BC ferries were sh- pretty much shut down. Um, and no one was really out in their boats, and it was just myself and my buddy Dave. Um, and the wolves and the bears and the, and the whales. So that was, uh, it was actually quite a beautiful experience that, uh, that, you know, that coast probably will not be seen in that way by kayakers maybe ever again. So it was kind of a, a privilege in that way. Yeah. Yeah. The, the chance of seeing something like that with absolutely nobody around again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause usually in, in May and June, it's, you know, a lot of people out and about, um, yeah. in their boats and, you know, the communities are all open up and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, the cruise ships are running, all that sort of stuff, right? But uh, there was nothing happening that way. So, yeah, it was kind of a uh, – yeah, and then, and then it kind of forced us to push through some heavier water conditions too, which was exciting because we only had X amount of food. And so it's a different mentality and approach when you're kind of – you're limited by your food and you have to get from point A to point point B. So, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Awesome. 
Um, well, I'll say the first time I heard the name Frank Wolf, I was at the Real Paddling Film Festival when it was still known as the Real Paddling Film Festival. Uh, a buddy of mine had mentioned this festival, so we went out to Oshawa to watch it in a bar. And the film Mammalian nice. was the first thing. And I'm thinking, hey, this dude's a bit off his rocker. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an awesome film. Um, seeing some of it, because, I mean, I, I lived a few years up in Moosonee when I was a kid. Um, so just sort of seeing that kind of, of environment compared to like Algonquin Park and stuff was pretty mm-hmm. cool. Um, knowing you're an environmentalist, seeing, you know, you're an adventure, your canoe trips, kayaking, pack rafting, bike trips, hiking, uh, like say skiing Baffin Island, rowing the Northwest Passage. You know, these are things that we, we talk about, we'd love to do, but you know, we, we went the career sort of exactly. tied down yeah. nuclear family sort of route. Yeah. Um, filmmaker, you may, you know, making your films while you're on your mini adventure. You're an author of books, magazine articles, public speaker. Like, is there anything you don't do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm a bit, I'm, I, I kind of, uh, dabble in a bit of everything, I guess, in terms of like, and for me, it's like, as long as I'm being, you know, being creative out there, then I'm happy. And, and it's, I don't really follow any kind of, if you see my, my films are definitely, mm-hmm kind of pretty run and gun, rough and ready. And I kind of just have done them the way I want to do them. There, there's sometimes, you know, there's a lot of kind of, I guess, quote unquote, performance art put in there too. But <laughs> I, I would get bored with doing a film in a conventional way, I guess. So just to keep myself entertained, I have to create these kind of, you know, wild narratives and make them work somehow. And that's the interesting thing about it. If I was just filming myself doing a trip, there has to be, you know, layers in there. Like, so you mentioned the Malian, and so we we were kind of you know filming. Of course, we we filmed got some good footage of caribou and and muskox and and Arctic wolves. But then I could not throw in this kind of Canadian snow leopard character that yes. just kind of came up in in Taku and in my minds. And uh, and we thought that he'll be the kind of transitional character, and we'll treat him just like we treat all the other animals as this kind of a, a separate entity that we spot along the way. And that was kind of just. That brought us great joy to kind of, and you know, it's kind of a, a you've had a long, hard day in the sideways rain. And then I'll, I, I'd say to Taku, Taku, it's time for a snow leopard shot. And we would just <laughs> overjoyed. It would just kind of, we just have such fun with it, right? So that kind of, that kind of freedom to be completely open and, and creative in, in kind of an out of context way. Cause most people probably on a hard, long canoe trip wouldn't necessarily um, do that sort of thing. But that's what really energizes me and interests me and gets my, gets me going. I, I'm far more creative being out on a difficult journey when I've got a million things going on at the same time than I am, you know, in my day-to-day life here. I'm not, not, I'm not really inspired to film in, in, in the city and stuff like that so much. Right. Um, writing transfers into a lot more kind of day-to-day stuff than, than that sort of thing. But to really get inspired filmmaking, it's got to be a little bit off the wall and interesting. And I, I, I don't really want to know where the film's going to go. It's kind of it's kind of opening itself up as it as it kind of comes along. Like nothing is kind of really pre thought out. It just kind of you know flows flows naturally as a trip would. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of how I approach that kind of any kind of creativity or writing or filmmaking. So yeah, I haven't done any films since I think the last one was like Wild Ones when my my buddy and I Pierce and we did that. Um, we toured his album by canoe from my cottage up to Ottawa for, for Canada yeah. today. And, uh, 
And that's that I've kind of, once I kind of feel like kind of re repeating myself too much as a filmmaker, then I just kind of stop. So I haven't done any films since then. So I don't know if I ever will. It would just have to be the right project that would kind of spark that kind of, you know, real interest and passion for sure. Yeah. If you don't have the passion, I mean, you start just going through the run of the mill, doing it out of routine. Yeah, you're kind and... of repeating yourself on, on, on kind of your shots and, and the sequence. Because a lot of canoe trips, if you do a bunch of them, uh, the, the atmosphere that, you know, I've done them in the tundra, I've done them in the transitional zones, I've done them in the boreal forest, et cetera. But it's, uh, you know, they, they, the shots do repeat themselves. If you look out on the internet or whatever, there's a lot of re repetitive stuff. There's only so much you can do. So you really have to add creative layers for myself anyways, to make it interesting. And then once, once, once that, if that interest isn't there, then there's no reason to be really be doing it. Right. So, right. um, but yeah, then that's the whole thing. Like even doing a, like you guys understand and people who listen to this understand that that um even just doing you know a canoe trip is creative if, if when everyone's kind of looking at their maps you know before they go out on a trip they're kind of like saying i want to go from here to here and 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 i think we can go like for me i, I don't really go off of kind of make up my own roots i kind of really find that fun that the mystery of 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 of, of of what's going to happen, you know, what's going to, what can stop me, what kind of difficulty, what kind of challenges are between, you can look at the map and you can kind of guess that it's going to go, but then the the whole creative part of it is making that, that theory of your trip actually a reality by going out and doing it. And that's kind of, it's wonderfully creative to do any kind of like an outdoor, you know, journey like that. And particularly I find in, in the Canadian shield area, because there's such a, a vast array of waterways you can travel in all sorts of directions, right? So it's kind of unlimited what, what your mind can come up with trip-wise. Exactly. That reminds me of, uh, there's one of the quotes I wanted to read back. It's uh, regarding modern exploration. So you said that modern exploration is more about human discovery and less about geographical exploits. Much of the world's surface has been mapped. There's nowhere truly to truly explore except within ourselves. Today's expeditions seek out the fastest, longest, or most unique. By succeeding in these endeavors, the modern explorer pushes the limits of what was once deemed humanly possible. And we've seen, we've we've read blogs recently and where people are, uh, the blog writer was critical about, uh, critical about people who uh, maybe try and do a route the fastest or try and, you know, do it the quickest or whatever. It, it, people do things for different reasons, but it's, mm -hmm. like you say, the modern exploration, like there's no place on earth that hasn't been, you know, walked on or discovered. So it's more about like the, the human discovery, the human exploration. Your own personal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, all the... Any canoe route anyone puts together, I mean, they may claim it hasn't been paddled or, but it has been paddled just by the practical nature of hunting and gathering like the indigenous people did for thousands of years. They've been on every single waterway. There's no, there's no mystery or untracked or unused kind of waterway anywhere in, in Canada. Um, no. and, and recreationally, they're beautiful areas to discover. Um, but for me, and I, when I go down on a trip, I never assume I'm ever the first. I kind of do a... Usually I, I've never used float planes. I kind of, my trips are in a pretty tight budget. So I just kind of go to the end of the road somewhere and then figure out a way to kind of work my way upstream, downstream and do a nice, a nice long journey to kind of the end, uh, usually to the ocean somewhere. And then usually I kind of give away or sell my canoe for cheap and then I just fly out of there. Um, but uh, the joy of it, it is just, you know, for me, it's new. So mm -hmm. in terms of getting the exploration, I haven't been there before. So to see it with my own eyes, in that context, um, it makes it like a, a brand new first for me. And that's kind of the main thing. It shouldn't, shouldn't matter what anyone else has really done before you. As long as you get that, 
your own visceral personal pleasure out of it. You shouldn't be doing a trip for anyone else ultimately, but yourself, um, exactly. your, the people you're doing it with. That's what it's all about. It's about the experience, not about trying to prove yourself or, or have people mm -hmm. look at you in sort of a, a vaunted kind of way. It's, it's more about just kind of, you know, enjoying that, that immediate experience it's very zen to be on a canoe trip as, as you guys probably know once you get out there for a few days you know you're just kind of very present every single you know uh because you've never been on this trip before like i I'm a big, my big trips i never repeat myself so when i'm out there it's like everything's brand new it's an amazing kind of stimulating you know way every every corner is fresh to me every rapid i've never seen before so your your, your senses are completely heightened you're completely in the moment and that's the real valuable thing you know that people talk about mindfulness and, and all that sort of thing. When you're out there on a canoe trip, you're just naturally mindful. You're just, you're there all the time. And that's the great thing about it. So, Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've been on a kick the last couple of years is the leaving technology at home kick. No GPS, no trackers, no, 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 you know, map and compass go, going back to that route because you're finding your, I mean, in my opinion is you're missing out on stuff because you're, you're looking at this little, map that's this little electronic map to where you need to go when mm -hmm. you could be sitting there with a map and compass you know using those those old timey skills as it were to to find your route and get more out of the trip than you you than, than most people are these days and that reminds oh, yeah, right same with me i'll bring a i'll bring a i'll bring a gps along but i'll i'll rarely consult it only if i'm you know have because usually if i have a map and compass you kind of you're always aware of where you are map relative to the land or water around you. Hmm. And then I just have the GPS to kind of, uh, almost as a backup. And I do use an in reach. Um, but I only use that once a day in the evening to throw down a haiku in a location and mostly just for my mom. So, you know, <laughs> <it's>, uh, <laughs> and, and other people follow along probably, but, but it's, uh, yeah. And it's kind of, a uh, it's uh, just, uh, if people are following you along on a map, whatever, they can see where you are. Uh, it gives them peace of mind. Like I never used to. Like the first time I ever used an inReach was in 2016. Before that, I only ever brought like a PLB with me and nothing else. And then, you know, basically uh, no news is good news. So, yeah, you know, I just kind of heading off for a 60-day trip. Uh, talk to you in 60 days, right? <laughs> That's... You'll hear in 60 days. And if you don't, well, then I've been absorbed and... That's the way it goes, right? So well, it reminds me of one of the trips, and you'll know better than my, me. But I think it was one of the ones when you headed up to Hudson Bay. You were backtracking to get some gear. You had thrown your GPS in your pocket. You you'd zipped the pocket shut, but the lanyard must have got caught on a tree, and you lost the GPS. And you right. looked for it for a bit, but then you, in in your writing, you said you said it was like a a purifying cleansing moment. It was like this moment of pleasure. I've mm -hmm. just, I, I, I'm glad I lost that GPS. I feel so much better now. It's cleansing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, that was where you did a trip from that basically, uh, my buddy Rob Hart and I, um, we got dropped off at the narrows of Lake Winnipeg, just kind of between the upper and lower basin. We basically crossed across the narrows. We went up the blood vein river, um, for a ways and then, uh, got into some bushwhacky stuff to get into, um, something called Family Lake and eventually the headwaters of the Severn River, which we took eventually all the way up to Fort Severn, just by the Ontario-Manitoba border. But on that portage, was like kind of a no trail. Um, and uh, yeah, the GPS got pulled out of my pocket somewhere in this kind of tight, you know, spruce brush that we were bashing through. 
And then I looked, I kind of looked at, I kind of backtracked a bit, looked around, around me and, you know, it was, you know, it was like a needle in a thousand haystacks. It was impossible. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So then I just kind of said, Oh, perfect. We're just old school that just free to the technology and just kind of, and it also makes you really be hyper focused on your surroundings. You can't be lazy in your navigation then, right. You don't have right. that kind of exactly. easy back yeah. your mind kind of wander away and you can, couple hours later, oh, we're a better check the G. You can't. You have, yeah. to, you have to know where you are at all times then. So it kind of really switches you into the moment as far as where you are at all times. So and if you're if you're handy with a, a map and compass it, you know, it's it's you know, that's what that's what I did for a couple of decades before this fancy GPS with map kind of stuff came <laughs> yes, out. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it just brings you right back to that purity of of navigation and tripping. Mm-hmm. You kind of kind of really superfluous pieces of technology when it comes down to it yeah i I don't think it's i i don't think it's needed as much as people seem to think it's needed people get hooked on it they do they really do get addicted to this technology it's because it it works for you you don't have to your your brain you don't have to exercise those brain muscles as much as you're normally used to and so it does allow you to get lazy so people tend to rely on technology and then when the batteries go dead or it breaks you're kind of pooched yeah, and I, I think the great thing, uh, if you're on a trip with a with a friend, and you're in the canoe, and you're having a discussion, and all of a sudden there's some something comes up about uh, I don't know, um, what's the name of that 1982 song by <laughs> by, by Asia, and, uh, and and it says, and now I find myself in Asia, you know. So, and the answer is heat of the moment, of course, but you may take you days to get that without having Google to consult. But that's the fun of it, the kind of go through the Rolodex in your brain and then two or three days later you go, aha, I got it. You, know? <laughs> yeah. you don't have this instant satisfaction. It, it forces your brain to work a little bit, right? So you yeah. kind of get that, uh, that, that every bit of information is not at the tip of your fingers. And, and the fun of information often is, is, is either arguing or making up stories about stuff <laughs> or, uh, or eventually getting the right answer, right? So that's kind of part of the, the fun of that, that simplicity. It's, it's you know, it, it kind of, uh, it stimulates conversation, whereas Google just ends it because, boom, the answer is there, right? So Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so. and usually it's 3 o'clock in the morning when I'm waking up to have a pee in the middle of the night. Oh, <laughs> that's that song. I don't care who you are. I'm waking you up and telling you. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, while we're talking about your films there, because I've got this sort of list of questions we're going to ask. We're going to start at the beginning, but we've sort of started in the middle. We'll go back to the beginning later. Um, there's five of your films that, that I've seen more than once. Uh, The Hand of Franklin, Mm -hmm. uh, Mammalian, Borealis, Keturiak, and On the Line. From your films... Uh, there's a, there's a few things we can we can figure out about you and it's your, definitely your sense of humor. Yeah, uh, weird, a, bar, a bit far out at times, uh, especially with the the Canadian snow leopard, as we we say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, um, the That's the performance, art. Yeah. performance art, yeah. The uh, the large mosquito. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you're out there showing what it's like to be on the trip, but it's not just a film of day-to-day routine, breaking camp, paddling, sitting up camp, going to bed. Uh, I, I really, I really like that about the films, mm-hmm. um, because there's so many people that, you know, they'll just attach the, the GoPro to the front, the back and okay, we'll just put it all together as a, this is what we did. 
um, despite the hardships, you know, the mosquitoes, massive long portages and everything, you're still out there having fun, mm-hmm. which is a big thing. Um, and the one, one, I, I have this question I've been wanting to ask you forever. <laughs> Taku. Yes. Your second trip. Uh-huh. Probably the funniest thing to me out of all your films is, do you know what day it is? <laughs> and then after guessing a few times, all he, of a sudden, there was a pause and his, then his whole face, his whole, it's your birthday. Yeah. <laughs> he missed it a second year in a row. That's right. So, well, two years, those two, tri- those trips were started by two years, but I remember the, in Borealis, I ambushed him as well. And he was kind of just picking spruce tips for tea. Yeah. And I said, I say, Hey Taku, uh, what day is it today? And he goes, mm, 20 days on trip. So he kind of went on and had no idea. <laughs> And I kind of keep waiting and waiting and kind of, yeah. And then he finally gets it. And then you think after that kind of moment, which he saw several times on film <laughs> after the fact that when it came around and of course the key thing when I'm on a trip is I, I, I want to get, I try to get authentic reactions and get things as they're actually happening. I don't, you know, if they're, if you're running a whitewater rapid, you're filming that whitewater rapid. If, if someone is is hurting or they're you're trying to get those authentic moments when you get a, a person kind of un unfiltered unguarded and Taku on that day in a mammalian he was like particularly hurting we'd just been dragging through these shallows um towards kind of lynx lake um his feet were hurting quite a bit it was kind of a cold miserable kind of tundra day and uh then of course that's the time when i I, I spring the question on him. And of course I don't reveal it's my birthday at all the entire day. Yeah. And then, and then he's just kind of tired and just kind of mm, just has no idea. And that's the beauty of it. And then is then, then this kind of burst of joy and laughing after a hard day, it totally, you know, it totally set his, his mood. Right. And, and was an amazing moment on film too. Right. So it was, um, yeah. I mean, the lovely thing about Taku, he's such a, he's such a, like a natural guy. And he's kind of one of these, guys on trip he's really curious he's always present he's really enjoying and savoring every kind of moment of 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 the day he doesn't say a lot of things on trip but but everything he does say and come out with is kind of gold right so Mm -hmm. he's kind of a very kind of kind of thoughtful almost typically i guess you know japanese kind of uh you know he speaks and born in japan speaks and and writes in japanese is very kind of a naturally thoughtful and meditative kind of guy, uh, but but also a, just a joy to be to be on trip with. Just um, such a, a great spirit and character, and that's the kind of person you look for on these journeys for sure. Oh, definitely. Uh, the one part where he wakes wakes up with the big lip. Oh yes, I, I was kissed by a couple mosquitoes. Don't tell my family. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So these kind of kind of these little one liners that kind of come out of the ether with Taku and then that trip in particular like he when he came with me on the Borealis trip he was he was um was he married I think he was maybe just no not quite hadn't been married yet him and Taku and Edno were just going out but then two years later when uh he came with me on the mammalian trip him and Ednoy, his wife, were married, and they had a seven-week-old, seven-week-old kid mm-hmm. that left to go on this fifty-day canoe trip with me, kind of thing. So, so I think uh, also when he probably realized that was his, this was his last big one, kind of thing, right? So he's yeah. got like three kids now, and he's he's deep into it. But um, but he uh, so he really savored every moment uh, of that, and also kind of you know the point of that film as well is kind of like uh, 
you know, people say, oh, how can you leave your seven-week-old, you know, behind? And, well, A, his wife was fine with it. I mean, at that point, when they're that age, I mean, yeah. the, the, his wife is doing most of it. She's got a big family around her to help her out. And really, in terms of, like, the lessons and life lessons and the way you 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 raise your children, I think it can only be positive if you, if you have these kind of long wilderness experience to give you perspective on the world and on life that you can kind of carry on to your children. It kind of influences the way you you will kind of, uh, you know, raise them and influence them, I think, I think in the right way. So I think him going on that trip in the long run probably was very, you know, valuable for his kids. Like he's totally connected his kids with nature. And, uh, and that's, and a lot of those, those trips are a big part of, of the way he kind of, you know, approaches his, his raising of his kids too. Right. It's, I mean, I ran into that when, when my wife and I, what, 26 years ago, 27 <laughs> years ago, whatever, announced we were getting married. Some of my buddies were, oh, well, I guess that's the end of your rock climbing days and your camping days and your, you know, all that. And it's, you know, my wife said, well, as long as he checks, make sure there's nothing going on, there's no reason he can't still do that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that, that seems to be, oh, once you get married, you're you're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's not the case. But, but my big question is, does he still remember your birthday or does he keep forgetting it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he forgets it. He's, just, he, he's, never, he's never dropped me a note on my birthday. That's all I know. But wow. that being said, I, I always kind of make sure I'm, I'm away on a trip on my birthday so no one can drop me notes anyways. <laughs> I do so, the same thing. Yeah, I'm always like, my birthday is July 21st, which is prime canoe tripping time, right? So I'm always always out on trip. Uh, unreachable. So, so maybe he is texting me. If I give my in reach, uh, <laughs> he could, could contact me, but it, interesting. I, I haven't actually had to, I, I occasionally drop Taku a line, but I don't really see him that often, uh, anymore. He's not too far away. He's kind of in new Westminster, not far south of here, but he's really, you know, fully, you know, absorbed in, in family life and that sort of thing. That's the way it goes. Right. So these people, you have these close, you know, you know, seminal lifetime relationships with, you know, people's lives keep moving on. I mean, that's why I've had so many trip partners over the years. Like I keep on tripping and everyone else, you know, can't necessarily keep on the same track, right? People have, you know, they get jobs, they have families, they move, all sorts of things happen to your, your trip partners over the way. But, you know, you're, you're right back in, like, like, like you, you haven't missed a beat, right? Because it's, there's that special uh, bonding experiences, these long uh, canoe trips, especially if it's just kind of two of you making your way through, you know, you're cu- I, I, I kind of clip along. I do 10 hour days, you know, I'll average always 40 K a day, 40 to 50 K a day on these long journeys upstream, downstream and that sort of thing. So you're, it's kind of like to move through that kind of distance, you really have to have be a tight functional team. And so it creates a bond that, uh, that is kind of, you know, going to last forever. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've done that. I've got buddies that I used to go tripping with all the time and there's a couple I haven't been with in a few years now, but I mean, you, you see them and it's just like, it was you, like you yesterday right up. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You have this kind of inside kind of jargon or, 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 or the way of talking that you developed on the trip, especially the longer the trip it is, the, the more you have this kind of, you know, this kind of, bond that almost it's a secret between you know, the two of you or whatever just because no one else has been you know through that experience with you except yourselves and, and you create this you know you create your own language and life and world really on these journeys that go on which is kind of another and that's why i like to like to like i don't people ask how come you don't do any solo trips i really like the experience of sharing it with at least one other person not a big team but like canoeing usually myself and one other person a canoe is ideal 
for efficiency of movement. Um, but I do still like to share that experience with at least one other person. It, it just enriches it. You know, you can bounce things off each other. You see things in different ways. It makes it much more interesting for filmmaking and photography and writing, all these sort of things. To have that mm -hmm. extra layer of, of humanity with you on a journey is, I think, I think much more, uh, it, it creates a much richer experience in the story than saying being in your own head by yourself uh, out there kind of thing, as far as the storyteller goes anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, you can only live with yourself for so long. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we've had these conversations before about the, you know, solo trips and why do you people go on solo trips? And Like I'll do like a four or five day solo trip just to get away from everybody and anything so I don't, you know, mm -hmm. end up going postal or something. But yeah, um, we've had these conversations and everybody says when you're going on these longer trips, having somebody to joke around with, to sit around the campfire and, you know, rehash the day and, you know, joke about, no, that fish was not three feet between the eyes. It was only a foot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it, it really makes it worth having that extra person. Yes. Something mm. to sh you, you know? got to share stuff with people. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I've gotten it worth it. into the, um, multiple people on a solo trip by everybody that wants to come along has to paddle their own canoe. So right. if, if there's three people, there's three canoes sort of thing. So yeah, it's everybody right. solo, you, you know, so you can get away for a day if you need to, you know, you're paddling that side of the lake. We're going around this side of the lake or something like that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, even if it's coming back, you know, I paddled this river, you guys missed out on seeing this sort of thing. You can hash it out at the end of the day around, yeah. around a meal in the campfire. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that's kind of like, yeah, you're still with the, it's like, it's like a sea kayak trip, you know, you're in your own individual sea kayaks, but, um, yeah, you're kind of, and it's nice to almost be in control of your own, you know, you're not going to have the old divorce boat argument or whatever when two people are the same kind of kayaker. Exactly. Too, right? Yeah. yeah. No, no navigational uh, uh, issues going on there at least. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you're doing your, your films and you're doing your big trips and stuff like that, how important is the history and the people, the areas you're traveling through? Um in Kinteriak, I, I really like how you portrayed the mosquito as the narrator of the trip since, you know, you're paddling through her land. Um, mm -hmm. You sit down a couple times with people in your films and you discuss what's happening, well, like with the, the pipelines and climate change. And you sit down and you have a, a caribou stew dinner with a bunch of people and the kind of conversations that would happen around that table. Yeah, I, I think... I think um yeah, for me, history is, yeah, it's interesting. I'm never like one, I'm, I'm more interested in, um, like a lot of my films, some of them are, are kind of more issue driven. So uh, they're not just like a, like uh, on the line, for example, we were following the proposed route of the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline, where we kind of hiked and biked and pack rafted and sea kayaked um, this controversial planned pipeline. And then, but, but yeah, the, so when I'm, when I'm doing my films, like I let the films kind of be, show you the kind of the, uh, the visual, bring people intimately into a landscape, um, which they probably, I mean, I don't, for that one, for example, no one else actually went along the actual pipeline route to show people, you know, physically and geographically and ecologically what was at stake. But then, and then myself and on that trip, Todd, we were kind of the, you know, entertainment at times in terms of the usual ups and downs of a trip. But then the main thing in terms of the, if I'm ever speaking to an issue, I always want the narrators to be the people who live 
in these areas. And oftentimes it is indigenous people. Right. So not so much the history in, in that sense, like the history isn't as important as the current issue at hand. That's more about the people currently living there. And they still share their histories and why this land is important to them historically. But it's, um, it's more about the say current, you know, in that case, you know, what happens if a, one of these, this pipeline springs a leak and goes into one of these 750 river courses that go into like the Fraser River and the Skeena River, these major salmon habitats and, and all that sort of thing. So really, I let, I let the people um, that I meet along the way be the narrators of the film. So in Kachuriak, you talked about, um, we were in Nain and we interviewed the the president of Nunatsiavut, uh, Sarah Leo, and she kind of gave us a bit of background. And then we talked to a couple of elders there. And then we met, and again, a lot of it's just serendipitous. It wasn't really planned. I had this route planned, but I didn't know. And I was like, I, tra I intentionally tracked down um, the Minister of Culture and Tourism, Johannes Lamp, who I believe is currently the president of Nunatsiavut. But he kind of had really good perspective on what we'd see up on the land, how the people used to live up there, and kind of to share that perspective that, you know, we're not the first people to do it. You know, this is this is kind of, this is, you know, land that's been kind of used and loved and utilized by for thousands of years. And just to get that perspective from the current Indigenous people, I think is really a valuable layer to put in there. Right. I think it's take the camera off yourself and, and really let the in, real information about it, because you can... I mean, you, you shouldn't be making up stuff about anywhere you're going. You can talk about your experience in that area, but in terms of the, the history and the landscape and, and the issues, you have to find people who actually know it, which are most of the time in northern Canada, the indigenous people. And so th that Inu camp we ran into in Katuriak on the, on the George River, that was completely just serendipitous. We had no idea there would be people there, but they, that ended up being like a really key anchor point of the film um, in terms of uh, the woman we met there, Valerie Courtois, she was a complete expert on on the Inu people, as well as you know how they're connected to the caribou, and the significance historically of that place that they were camping as kind of a traditional place, you know, for ten thousand years where the Inu would set up camp to kind of hunt caribou, and and that's the thing if you leave yourself open to the moment and when it's happening, just make sure you get the camera running and you kind of ask people questions and and it's and you get these un, and that's that's the event that's the adventure of filmmaking in the sense that you have it's really hard to coordinate with people on these remote canoe trips. You just have to jump it or seek it out if you see it opening up in front of you. And then you kind of, it seems like these are set up, but literally I go into these these First Nations communities and I, I've got like half a day, I'm doing a, maybe a couple hours. And in these towns, you can pretty quickly track down, you know, the mayor, some elders, people pointing in the right direction, and you get some really good stories from the people who are just around at that time. And that's, it's way better than trying to like set it up and and go through these kind of official channels. You just kind of show up as a human being to human being and you get these great stories as long as you have kind of like a line of questioning that kind of um, connects to your theme. So, right. um, yeah, that's the beauty of it. It's the adventure of it's the adventure of filmmaking or storytelling is that you you don't realize you're going to run into these people. And when you do, you get these amazing stories. That's like half of the adventure, like talking to these people who live out there and what are they doing there? And why is this area so important? These are all kind of you know, questions that I want to know and that probably people who watch the film want to know too.
Yeah, and from your films, I've noted that is uh, it, it's more organic the way you do it, and you spoke to it in the book as well. That uh, it, as opposed to planning it ahead and having something scripted that doesn't come off as genuine, it's more organic. It's just like, hey, you want to be on film and and whatever, right? So it it works out in a more organic and and easy way. They have a conversation instead of some planned script, so mm-hmm. as it's, yeah. it comes off so much more natural. And as what, I'll quote you from your book: it's a uh, they know the land like no other, so let them speak to it. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly too. Yeah. And so, you know, they live there. They've been there for generations. They've heard stories from their great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, all the way down the line. You know, they've been raised in the land. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think I've never had a bad interaction with, you know, any of the Inuit or or uh, First Nations or other folks I've met in you know, all across northern Canada, they've been very, it's like, it's like anything. I think people who live in the north have a real appreciation and concern, appreciation that you're there and enjoying their land as well, but also have, you know, a genuine concern for your own well-being. And, you know, they're very, yeah, they're very, very, very open and, and giving. So I've had just some amazing experiences where people have, you know, opened their homes to us um, in all sorts of ways. So like, like in 2018, I did a trip from from Yellowknife to Chantry Inlet. So we went from Yellowknife to the headwaters of the back river and all the way up to Chantry in, in the, like the Northwest passage there. And we kind of changed our route cause there was low water. And, I, and we said in the end, okay, let's just run the whole back river. It didn't even have maps for the last like four or five days. And we'd heard that sometimes there are people camping in Chantry Inlet that we can maybe hook up then a ride with up to Joe Haven, which is like 180 K away up over across open ocean. And, um, and it's just complete, you know, and then we, I got through in reach through my wife, she contacted someone in town. They said, well, sometimes people will camp out at this waterfall and, but it was still locked in ice literally until two days before we arrived, like Joe Haven was still locked in ice. So people weren't coming out onto the land. And we just, just just out of pure, we didn't know where the waterfall was. It kind of came out this big, broad Delta. And there was one kind of high rise of land way off the distance. It kind of looked like there was a bit of snow there or something. We thought there's going to be a waterfall. It's got to be over there. We just kept paddling towards it until like dusk, 11 o'clock. And we get within a few hundred meters of shore. And there we see these two little canvas tents set up. And, uh, and so we land. Um, I kind of go up and I knock on the frame of, of one of the, the canvas tents. And then the, the flap just swings open. And this older woman, she kind of, looks at me with big surprise and she goes, Kabluna, and she shuts the, the flap shut over, <laughs> over standing there. And I hear this murmuring from inside the tent. And then out comes um, this other older gentleman um, and his name is Jacob At- Atkatuk and that was his wife, Martha. And they were both in their like mid seventies and they'd actually grown up in that area in the mouth of the back river up until he's about 25. So they were actually one of the last uh, people there to to live on the land right so um living in skin tents and igloos all that sort of thing mm-hmm. before they got moved up to joe haven and then the tent next so they didn't speak any kind of english they only spoke in Nuktitut. so but next door um their son was was fluent in both so he kind of translated and and we said hey could uh we get a boat into town or something like that you know and uh it was totally just like like pure kind of luck unplanned but then um <laughs> uh yeah so he basically phoned up a guy and i bartered my shotgun for a ride back to uh <laughs> back to Haven. They, and then they they kept on going the next day they kind of took off and went fishing up the river and, and buddies of theirs came in the next evening and picked up me and my buddy ryan 
and took us back to Joe Haven. And, and meanwhile, Jacob, because we'd given as a canoe, he said, you can just stay in my house in Joe Haven. We had to wait five days for a plane to leave. So we just stayed, lived with his family for five days. He came a couple days later, Jacob and Martha. And we ended up living like sometimes there's like 30 Inuit folks, like, like we're in a big, you know, uh, igloo or something. You know, they're cutting fish. They're cut, they basically had a, a real hoot feeding us interesting Inuit food and laughing at us. Um, <laughs> Here, try this. I know that, you know, they feed us an eyeball, <laughs> we eat it, give them a reaction, they all hoot and holler and laugh and, you know, feed the, feed these guys something else. And then probably the strangest thing we ate there was, um, I remember I was, I was in this little shed outside and I looked and there was this little, like, just like a, a blue Rubbermaid bucket, like, covered and I didn't know what it was. And then and then we're in there talking and, and they say, oh, you should try the fermented seal meat. Oh, where do you have that? What's in that Rubbermaid bucket out there in the shed? And so they bring this kind of fermented seal meat, which is just kind of a paste at this point. It's been sitting there for three months, this seal just kind of stewing in its own juices. And um, and they kind of fed it to us. And then, you know, Jacob uh, kind of translates through his son and says, you know, I've got to feed it to you with my finger because if you touch it, the smell won't get off your hands for a month. <laughs> so, so he basically takes it and he's kind of feeding me and Ryan like little birds. He puts this little piece of like fermented seal meat in our mouths and it kind of tastes like like Limburger cheese times 10. <laughs> and we all, of course, our faces went completely sour. And, and we had the whole extended family just on their backs, just laughing and rolling around, um, <laughs> that kind of thing. So we, we bonded with those guys really well. Like, we, I still keep in contact with them. We had such a great time just living. And, and Jacob basically kicked out two of his nephews to give me and Ryan our own rooms in their house. Um, so they went to live with their aunties for a few days while we had our own rooms. You know, he treated us like real proper guests when we were there. So... Um, yeah, it's just an example of it. It's like re really random uh, interactions with these northern peoples that, you know, so warm, so friendly, uh, so open and, and just give you like, a, you know, this kind of amazing uh, connection and lifetime of memories when you have um, when you have that. And, and they and they really appreciate where we'd been. Like when I told Jacob, we come down the back river, he kind of knew every nook and cranny of the back river. He'd hunted up and down the river, you know, for the first couple of decades of his life. So when, you, when you're out in the land and you're coming off the land, um, you know, people see that and they appreciate it. They kind of know where you've been and you have this kind of instant connection. So that's kind of the beauty of northern travel. And, and the, few, the few people you meet up there, you're going to have really memorable interactions with them. You're going to remember them all. You don't meet many people, but you remember, you know, them all for sure. You know? Right. One that stuck in my mind was uh, it was your, I think it was 2003, your, your bicycle trip from Dawson to Nome. So Dawson, Yukon to Nome, Alaska. It was mm -hmm. like a thousand kilometers or something. Yeah, like 2008, were, we were basically retracing the route of two gold miners who'd done the same thing. Yeah, so you were mainly yeah. following Ed Jessam's diary. And That's so and at one point you uh, met up in a village with an elder and his oral history from his family up his line, he says, yes, we've talked about the Ed Jessam guy who who, is, who who bicycled through our village and we talked to him. And, and it's just incredible for that oral history to make it all the way down to him that he knew about this and he mm -hmm. related to your trip, to Ed Jessam's trip. And I just thought, found that pretty incredible that the, like you say, the serendipity of the of the situation that it's just like you can't plan for stuff like that. That's incredible. Yeah, we, we literally remember that we met this guy on the river and his his grandfather or grand and grandmother had told him that you know in 1901 you know the thing that really stood out in their mind with these of all you know there are a bunch of people on dog sleds and walking and this sort of thing but two guys and these weird things that were bikes <laughs> going down the river 
1901. And so he remembers his grandparents telling him that, and he was like passing that on. Yeah, my grandparents saw those guys kind of things, just complete, you know, random kind of uh, luck. But I guess, you know, the, the indigenous people, they kind of stay in these settlements, especially, you know, probably longer so in Alaska even. And so it makes sense that they would have, you know, someone would have had eyes on these these cyclists back in the gold rush days and then passed on that story because it would have been so out of context um, compared to what they're used to, right? So Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. It's pretty incredible. So first off, Frank, you should feel honored. Oh, because we have a thing on the show called Derek's Book Club, <laughs> which means Derek buys a book, Sean reads it. Uh-huh. He's actually read your book. No. <laughs> as far as I know, <laughs> that is the only book he's ever read. Wow. I've, I've read the first well, half twice. And I've read Don't the whole... read any other books. It's the best book on the face of you. <laughs> it's a pretty good book. That's all you need right there. Yeah. Like, I got to say, like, uh, your writing now, your writing style, it's... Uh, I'm assuming that you formatted, you formed your writing style according to, you know, you're bound by what, how many words you can put in a magazine and so on. Busy, you're you're clear, concise. You're not too wordy. Like just a simple, like the the brightness of the forest. It's like I can, you, you can say a sentence and I can get exactly what you're talking about. And some mm-hmm. other authors I've read, where it's like, oh my god, you're like three pages in and he's still describing that sunset. It's like, yeah. can, can you get on with it, right? So you, it's yeah. your your writing is very clear and concise and I can form images in my head when I read your writing it's like it, it's a very easy like it's it it pops in my head just like a movie right and That's it's, great. it's that. yeah it's very, I really like your format of writing it's it comes across so nicely yeah and in that book lines in a map it's like I think 16 of the 24 stories were previously published so those would have had pretty tight like uh, yeah, like 2,000 to 5,000 word kind of uh, caps as far as like the magazines that I wrote for, wrote those for. And then there are uh, uh, like the other eight stories is kind of, I probably went a little bit longer, but not too long. Yeah, kind of like kept it that kind of The type. format, yeah. And, and, and it's obvious like when I'm, when I wrote these stories, it's, it's hard to in, like probably a lot of my trips, if I look at the books out there, I could probably do a whole book on each one of these trips if I really did. But a lot of the times I was focusing on the filmmaking, right? And so when you're focused on the filmmaking, you'll still throw an article off on the side, but I didn't have, I mean, to write a book every year is, is daunting to say the least if you do a whole book about every single trip. Right. So, um, yeah. So the kind of magazine style, I just kind of try to find, find a theme, um, especially in my, my last few years of writing for explore kind of something like, you know, the theme of say loss or time, these kind of like you know common themes that kind of you know exactly. I me and Sean uh, were talking about that before. Yeah, you the, kind of apply that to to the whole journey, and then you kind of just connect stories from the journey into that theme, and that and that kind of allows that kind of gives you a, a parameter to kind of within which to write write the story, and and you throw in a bit of, of course humor and you know yourself. And I I guess I try to when I write, I just like with my films, I try to capture the more the the soul of the journey as much as I can, kind of get people give people a a, a feeling of a being there with us either 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 in writing or in film but also um also having people kind of uh really feel some of the essence and love i feel for the journey through it too right so to kind of have that kind of come out almost between the lines is is what uh is what the ideal is i think 
Yes, and you can feel that in the writing. So that's I noticed that there's some common themes that, and I really appreciate it. It is like, like often almost every single story I read, there's some component of time or the flow of time, or you'd compare, you know, uh, you know. Uh, voyagers back from 300 years ago and technology and so on and how things have changed over time and and another common theme was like the northern peoples and and their plight and and the common environment theme and it was you you speak very clearly and very passionately about all of these things and it comes clear very clear in your writing so it's uh it, it's a fantastic book and it's the the writing is very clear concise and very passionate i appreciate it yeah well thanks for saying that very nice he liked put the a, pictures put, too. You did put a review up on, <laughs> on Amazon for me there, uh, Derek. I'll write up for review. Yeah. Right <laughs> yeah. What he's not telling you is that he really enjoyed the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> They're in color. <laughs> They're colored pictures. Yeah. Just go in the middle. Lots of color pictures. And because, like, you know, there's a. Uh, I don't know if the snow leopard made it in there. I don't think I did. I just let that be the writing. And then uh, there is a Sasquatch in there, I believe. There's, we did a Sasquatch yeah. in yeah. one of my articles. Yes, yes. Yeah, you did the Sasquatch pose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, I enjoyed the book as well. Um, we're talking about it. lines on a map. My 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 timeline here on how we're supposed to run I know, this I know. interview is all over the there's board. There's so many things I still want to yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> um, lines on a map by uh, Frank Wolf here. Uh, I've enjoyed the book. Um, it's more than just paddling stories is what, what I liked about it. Ag again, I mean, I come from we're, uh, living on forums and stuff where people are posting their trip logs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it, it's all these different stories of the exciting bits that have happened on different trips. And you can't help but just keep turning the pages. Exactly, yeah. You know, okay, where's he going next and what's he doing next? I mean, little things like, uh, you know, having lunch with Pierre Trudeau. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was like the first kind of, I guess the first trip that really got me hooked on this long distance tripping, of course, was my, still my biggest trip ever as far as like time on the water. In, in 1995, I canoed from, uh, from, uh, the Bay of Fundy to Vancouver. It's like 171 day, like 8,000 K trip. And that was, the goal of myself and my, my partner at the time was to um, basically be the first to canoe across Canada, coast to coast in a single season. So that was our, our mission. Um, it's been done more times since then, but yeah. Um, yeah, we went, we were kind of the first to do it. And then along the way, um, somebody had somehow got in contact with, with Pierre Trudeau, who's in Montreal at the time. And he reached out through like, I think um, the guy Lance's mom, who's with me and then said, Hey, uh, when you get sound, phone this number, and and uh, Mr. Trudeau will he'll he'll buy you lunch. And so oh, great. And so uh, so sure enough, we kind of I remember it's kind of like a very dirtbag start to that day um, in the sense that we were camped kind of illegally in a little park in downtown Montreal, right off the Jacques Cartier Bridge. Um, we basically had been coming upstream on the St. Lawrence uh, under cover of darkness at like eleven o'clock at night, portage over the bridge, and just kind of you know okay, this is flat, let's camp here. And then we were kind of, you know, woken up by a police officer at 6.30 in the morning, say, hey, you can't camp here, you know, right by this really busy roadway and this little parkette kind of between these two little, kind of like Zach Galifianakis between two ferns. We were between two uh, two fir trees instead. But, um, and, and I remember also, like, I really had to go to the bathroom really bad. <laughs> and... Uh, and so there's no public bathroom or anything, but we have the vestibule in the tent, of course, right? So I kind of remember cutting out this perfect kind of two foot by two foot square, dug it out, 
did my number two business in there and I remember just sealing the grass back over the top and you couldn't even see that anything had happened. It was like a seamless, <laughs> seamless kind of, you know, total like, you know, hobo in Montreal moment. But, um, and then two hours later, you know, we're up in the offices of the, of the IBM building where, where Pierre Trudeau at the time was working for as a consultant for a law firm. And we're waiting in the, um, in the lobby there. And I remember him just running down this spiral, like staircase, just sprinting like a teenager. And he walks up to us. He was 75 at the time and just strides up to us and just throws out his hand. And, and he goes, uh, he goes, uh, the bright eyes, just like, oh, Frank. And he's like, hey, Mr. Trudeau. And then, and he said, let me buy you lunch downstairs. And so we go down the elevator with a couple of his law associates and very casual, you know, there is this all pre-selfies and all that sort of thing, pre-cell phones, et cetera. You know, pre-Google, otherwise I would have known my partner a bit better. But um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so literally we're just standing there in this cafeteria, the base of the building with plastic trays um, with Pierre Trudeau on my left saying, you know, he's like, oh, the souvlaki is very good. So I'll take your recommendations. We get some souvlakis from the, and just sit down, just kind of very plain, you know, almost like a cafeteria in a high school kind of a table and just start talking about canoeing for like, you know, 45 minutes, just. He was sharing, you know, stories with us how when he was just out of university, he uh, canoed from Montreal up to James Bay, did like a solo trip, um, did all these travels. That year at 75 years of age, he was about to go up to Baffin Island to do a 10-day canoe trip. So still canoe tripping up to that point. Um, and then, uh, and also telling us at the time actually how proud he was. He kind of had his three sons, you know, uh, you have Justin, the current prime minister, and you have Sasha, who's actually a well-known kind of reporter, journalist. But the son he was most proud of was Michel, who he said, uh, yes, Michel has a good life. You know, he's a, uh, he's, a, he's a ski bum. He's a canoe tripper in the summer and a ski bum in Whistler in the winter. And he just had this glow of pride about that because that's, kind of, that's kind of the guy he was. He could, he could appreciate that his one son has just kind of really immersed himself into living, you know, day to day. And unfortunately, his son died like yeah. three years later. But that was a sign you could tell he just had this, 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 this deep pride in in just kind of him kind of embracing that kind of, you know, wilderness loving uh, lifestyle. But um, yeah, so, and then afterwards we went up basically to um, up to his offices because we were wondering how we were going to get around the Lachine Rapids going upstream. And so he kind of pulled out some maps in Montreal, and we we kind of looked over the maps, and he kind of pointed out the canals where the big freighters go through, and he said. I bet you guys can just go through the canals. And he actually made a call to some guy who runs the canals or knows, knows about the canals. And the guy said, oh, yeah, those guys can go in there. So he kind of did a little little research for us and then sent us off with like a, a six-pack of, uh, of Canadian uh, maple syrup for the road. <laughs> and that was it. It was, it was like the beautiful, you know, Canadian experience with, you know, probably the, 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 the most Canadian of prime ministers in terms of his connection to the land and actually getting out there and doing it, not just being a – yeah, a talking head in an office, right? So that's some, one thing I appreciated about him. You know, regardless of his politics, he he was an amazing uh, man as far as you know being you know connected to Canada and what Canada is all about. Yeah, Pierre Elliott Trudeau running the logistics for your trip to get through Montreal—that's pretty incredible. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, unplanned, so you never know who's going to help you out along the way. I know, right? right? <laughs> Does it get any more Canadian than that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, to 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 keep on the the where it all began sort of thing. Uh, like you say, your 171 day, 8,000 kilometer 
canoe trip across Canada from New Brunswick to BC. Uh, after that, you did a 1500 kilometer, 35 day, uh, starting in Prince Rupert. And so by that time, I guess you've caught the, the long trip bug. Yeah. It was like the longer that I just went, okay, I can do this. And I, I didn't, yeah, for that second one, I wanted to go then west to east across Canada, but I didn't want to repeat anything I'd done. Right. And, and really I, I had a naivete in terms of like, you know, when I did the trip, I was about 24 when I went across Canada by canoe the first time. And we didn't really have much in the way of technical whitewater. Um, we went down the Fraser River where we kind of portaged around the big rapids like Bridge River and um, and Hell's Gate and stuff like that. Right. And the river otherwise is pretty, you know, it's pretty, there's some boils and stuff. But in the October when we were coming down, it was pretty low water. So it was actually a pretty good time to travel. So we didn't really have, I, I was not a, a whitewater paddler, I would say at the time. So, um, and then suddenly I'm planning this route going up through the coast mountains of northern BC, up the Babine, up the Skeena River, up the Babine River, across land into the Peace, this big kind of mad, crazy kind of route. But of course, we're going upstream through the coast mountains in, uh, in spring flood in April. But I, I was of the, you know, at that point, I had not yet acquired fear. And I was uber confident in terms of that my ability to push as long as there was water, I felt I could get up it. Right. Um, but then, yeah, that that trip was like a, a series of kind of, of of things that kind of I think within we started really late in our first day out of Prince Rupert, going up the Skeena River. We came into this camp at night. The river was kind of high. We were lazy. We were tired. First day in, and we drank the water out of the river. And then a couple of days later, we discovered we had Jardia. Oh. Um, from that one time, we got lazy with the filter. Um, first day, ah, it's just, you know, it's, it's going to be fine, you know. And then, but it wasn't, obviously. And then, so you're basically going upstream on the Skeena River in a dry suit, you know, working the eddies up this, you know, pretty powerful river and pretty high water all the way up to the town of Hazleton. And then we got there. Um, we got to the local medical clinic. They gave us some Flagyl, which is kind of this Jardia buster. Um, and we basically just spent like two days in this motel room, destroying the bathroom, um, <laughs> uh, as, as we waited for this flagell to kind of kick in. And then we were, after two days, we were just gone and moving again. So once, once it kicked in, it, you take it for seven days and you keep on going. Um, and so we're going upstream and then the Skeena Canyon was really pumping. I also had this kind of, this ideal and this aesthetic that I didn't want to use mid wheels. I, I thought it was cheating if the canoe's not on your back. Like, we'd, we'd use mid-wheels for the cross-Canada canoe trip before. We basically did this 400-kilometer portage. That's when you blew Edmund the tire. When we went across Canada the first time. Did, like, walked, like, 55 kilometers a day for seven days to do oh. that one. Uh, on the highway, sleeping in ditches with 18-wheelers going by us. So I wanted to kind of go in a pure kind of roadless area, do it on my back where there isn't the option to use roads and stuff like that. But... Um, and so we ended up doing about 70 kilometers. There was like a, a dirt logging road along the edge, 70 kilometers on our backs into the Babine. The Babine was flooding. We had to get up and then we started just dragging for days and days up and down the steep valleys along the Babine River. And this is mountain country too, right? We've seen right. claw marks on the trees and stuff like that. But we're using tons of energy. We're moving like two kilometers a day and we're running out of food. So we finally get around this big canyon section after a few days. 
and then get get into the river but it's still humming pretty high so we can kind of line along the way but then there's trees that are falling in the river so you have to go around the trees if you're lining and this one particular tree i was lining around i was pulling around it kind of sucked the canoe under the tree and i heard this big loud crack and the whole canoe goes shooting down i swim after the canoe pull it to the side there's this like hairline crack running tip to tip on the canoe and we're way behind schedule we're running out of food and so we decide shoot we gotta we gotta turn back go back to hazelton and reroute and okay i'll get some midwheels and we'll go go over land to get into the babine lake and move on that way so you know i gave it a good go at least i thought but again that's just the beginning of the of the of the problems here so so here we are two guys it's like a it's a clipper tripper it's like a it's a fast canoe but not a whitewater canoe by any means not very nimble we had a spray deck we both had dry suits so we're going down the next day down the river and we're basically planning to go pull out just before the canyon starts and then bushwhack our way back to the the dirt road and then back to hazelton which would have still been days and days and days of work but um so we get down the river's just you know you know seven eight foot haystacks in the middle of the river it's just full flood there's like a grade four river canyon at low water in the fall and this is just like boom spring flood and we're going in down like a tripping canoe two guys who really shouldn't be in there and don't really know enough about whitewater to be in that position but ignorance was bliss at the point <laughs> so, so um so going down and then we hit this um this one i mean a uh, big kind of uh haystack go sideways we flip you know probably within like you know five minutes of being on the water and then we're swimming down and remember at one point we spooked this moose and it jumps into the water ahead of us. So right there within 15 feet of us is this moose kind of like paddling around with his big clompers around us. We're, got, we're holding onto the canoe saying, where the hell, we got to get the canoe out somewhere. And then, uh, so we're all, you know, myself, my buddy Ben at the time, the canoe and, uh, and the moose are all whipping down this river and flood heading towards this kind of Canyon. And there's a big corner. And I remember we, managed to catch the big recirculating eddy me and ben and the canoe got out and then we just saw that moose to keep on going on down the river never mm -hmm. saw that again so so then we i'm kind of like i'm still pretty i'm pretty okay i'm my head's i can see my 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 buddy ben is kind of like kind of hyperventilating a bit he's pretty nervous he's not saying much and i'm just saying it's all right man we're still together we just got yeah, another couple of kilometers before the canyon edge and then we're just gonna head on back you know we're all right just gotta Let's not flip the canoe again, though. <laughs> <laughs> so we dump the canoe out, and we get back in the river, and it just just keeps going, and it's narrowing. And we see in the distance then this kind of the walls of the canyon kind of like creeping up like 100 feet into the air, like almost like a narrow like wall, something out of Indiana Jones down the way ahead of us. And so I see on the left where we want to get to this eddy where, the, where we kind of came out on our, our bushwhack portage. And just as we're, you know, approaching it, uh who knows what happened but we flipped the canoe again i think the the draw happened when it should have been a pry and boom we're in the water and it's humming and it just whips us right past that portage exit right into the canyon and then so it's myself and ben and the canoe and we are just going down this ever narrowing canyon you know through hydraulics and i remember i remember just you get separated so quickly so at one point we were like 50 feet apart i'd swim hard towards the canoe and then ben was ben was like not breathing properly so he was kind of like breathing in the trough and holding his breath at the top so he's taking a lot he was swallowing a lot of water and he was saying he he was shouting to me he didn't know if he could make it much much longer he's swallowing a lot of water and i said well just get out where you can 
and it was hard though. We were kind of like getting along the edge. It's just like walls. So you're like scraped along these canyon walls with your fingers, but there's nowhere to stop. No eddies. It's just a straight running canyon, right? So, so then eventually, um, Ben claws onto some rocks, and I see him heave himself up, and he's got kind of these kind of half dead kind of eyes, and I'm I'm just still totally pumped. It's like, oh, this is fine. I'm like. All right, Ben, uh, you just hang out there. Uh, I'll get the canoe out around the next corner. I kind of shout to him. I remember that. And he just kind of looks at me like, well, that's the last time I'm going to see that guy. <laughs> uh, and then I was just, I was still totally like, and then probably about a minute after that, going down into this ever narrowing canyon, um, the canoe and myself, we kind of got churned around a little bit and then it released us. And I remember trying to get the canoe back onto its belly and then got it up sideways and I had a, a camera from National Geographic running, like the red light was on and it was, I could see it was filming. It was still going, right? right. I'd been filming the whole thing and I forgot about it. It was still running and I, and I was kind of, had a bit of a morbid thought thinking maybe this is, maybe this is, you know, filming the last moments of my life, but no, I'm going to be okay. And then I kind of crawl on top of the canoe and I had this kind of serene, kind of surreal moment where I was kind of straddling the belly of this canoe and it was just like this, I had this severe moment of calm. I was just kind of riding the canoe and I saw the kind of the, this, this crazy, you know, whitewater canyon narrowing before me to this kind of like almost closure point. And I, and I kind of thought, I can ride this thing all the way to the sea. I just like was so <laughs> confident it's going to be okay. And then probably within about 30 seconds of that, the whole river went over a, a river wide pour over like a super powerful hydraulic edge to edge. And boom, I went in, the canoe went in, and just, boom, I was down, like, under. For like, uh, suddenly you're, like, 15 feet down in the darkness. And I remember, you know, I only got a half breath going in. And I came up and recircled and just got another half breath. And then, boom, back down again, like, deeper and deeper and holding me down deeper. And you're on a half breath, and, you're like, and suddenly, like, I realize, oh, boy, this is not good. And then it lets me up one more time in the recirc, And again, like, a half, half breath. And then, boom, right down to the bottom, like, 20 way down just in the darkness right and, and just holding me there and i was thinking no this is my next breath is going to be water and i have to breathe i have to i can't hold my breath anymore this is it but then i had this last kind of second kind of this instinct that kicks in for survival and i just swam super hard along the bottom of the river and to the edge and it released me up along the edge and popped me up on the canyon edge and i grabbed onto some rubble that had fallen down there and hauled myself out and i turned around in time to see the canoe kind of still chundering in the in that re recirc and then being released and just kind of whipping down at 20k an hour down the river and i just let out this big kind of like banshee scream of elation at being alive and having gotten through that experience and the canoe is just gone with all our stuff national geographic camera running i was just standing there alone with my dry suit my partners i don't know at 510k up the river on the wrong side of the river and uh, then i had to scramble up this like 100 foot cliff pretty technical scrambling too i almost fell off a couple of times got over the edge and just started walking for like two hours through the bush um until i got to the beginning of the road we'd portaged in there happened to be just had a pure lock a guy who'd come in to check how the spring floods had been treating this road they were putting in they actually ended up never putting this road all, all the way through but he just was obviously surprised to see a guy just coming out of the bush with a dry suit and i kind of said hey could you give me a <laughs> and here our canoes kind of washed downstream my buddy is uh wrong side of the river there's no bridge onto that side of the river wrong side of the river and he's up there so the guy calls in like the local search and rescue they come in i go up in the helicopter with them to kind of you know 
show them where we were. And we kind of go up the whole canyon that I've just swum, basically, all the way up, back and forth. And, and uh, you know, I think I, I swam, like, we were in there for, like, 10K of just, like, battling. You don't even notice it. But um, but uh, then eventually we saw Ben was down on the rock waving his PFD. Um, so we dropped down on the rock and, and picked him up. And then that was uh, that was that was kind of the and then you know even after that like Ben had a whole bunch of he had a big air bubble in his stomach a bunch of water in his lungs so they took him for overnight in Hazleton but he ended up being okay and then I I, I within a week I was still so determined to do it I got resupplied all our gear was gone so I got resupplied with our sponsors within a week had some friends drive it up and we kind of continued on that journey and eventually the canoe that was found uh one thing the search and rescue guys told us that had i stayed in that river for another kilometer from where i crawled out there was basically a pinch point where they've seen whole kind of you know 200 foot douglas fir trees go underwater and pop up about 500 meters downstream it's like a full constriction where everything goes to the bottom of the river and out so had i stayed in the river another kilometer i would have been guaranteed dead had i gone into that full-on uh sieve and then um, I think about two weeks later, they found the canoe, uh, two halves split perfectly in half on the Skeena Canyon. Uh, they're were, they were found 10 kilometers apart. Um, the canoe was just cut in half and nothing else was ever found. No camera, no nothing. It's, it's probably big in Japan or something. My, my <laughs> battle there. But um, yeah. And eventually on that trip, when we did the reroute, we did the 150 kilometer mid-wheel thing. Um, ben ruptured his Achilles. I cracked some ribs on a portage when I fell on the point of the canoe, slipping off a log on a bushwhack. And then we were just way behind time. Eventually we just quit in Northern Alberta on the Peace River, kind of just burnt out uh, and behind our time. And yeah, we were just not in good headspace at that point. So we, we, had, we had through the ringer on that trip, but that trip had kind of, you know, you can give up and never go on another trip again, but that trip had just made me realize that how much I had to learn and, and so I, then I really, I got into whitewater kayaking that summer and just kind of trained myself in whitewater and, 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 and gained a respect for whitewater and knew how to manage whitewater and read whitewater and do all that sort of thing to kind of help myself in future trips. So I don't kind of just kind of, you know, barrel in, you know, blindly. And ever since then, like I lost my, my, my veil, my, my, my youthful veil of invincibility after that trip. And then it, uh, it when you get kicked in the butt, as long as you learn it and use it right, then you can survive or avoid these kind of things from happening in the future. So that was a very well, if you survive these kind of close calls with death and you learn a lesson from it, it'll be invaluable the rest of your life. As right. long as you survive, right? As long as you survive. So but, that's, um, that's the yeah. key. Yeah. Exactly. I was, uh, when I, when I read your book, that was, that's the very first story in the book. And I, I was thinking, why would he include a story about abject failure and, and <laughs> eventually giving up the trip? But it, it sort of makes in context now that you describe it, it makes sense. It's a, it was a huge lesson learned and this could be a huge lesson learned for other people or for readers. So it, it makes more sense to me now. It was, it was one of the questions I'd written down. I was like, well, why did you make this the yeah, first I mean, story? Fail, failure <laughs> is always more interesting than success. Yes, I, I guess. Like, <laughs> The, the human weakness and, and mistakes and failures, that, that's what makes adventure. Adventure is when, when the trip goes wrong, right? Otherwise, it's just a trip. Yes. So adventure is when, when things just go completely sideways. And um, that's when you remember it. That's the, the high points. 
Yeah, exactly. And you don't want to, it makes for a great story, but you certainly don't want to repeat it. Oh, um, no, no. Yeah. Like I, I, I dropped out of a trip in 20, early 2019, I had to drop off of an Arctic ski trip because my feet went totally bad. Um, but then, yeah, the, the story I wrote about it for Explore Magazine, it was, it was about that and kind of and the perspective you have and, and making the right decisions when you can't finish a trip. You have to think about the team. You have to think about your own body and well-being and know that you've done everything you can up to that point and you have to make a decision sometimes to pull out off of a journey if it doesn't work out because, I mean, that's it. You, you, any one of these adventures I go in, I never assume it's going to be a success. Um, I, 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 I hope for success. I plan for success, but I, I expect the worst and, uh, and, and, but hope for the best, you know, and, and you kind of plan accordingly, but, uh, you can't, you can't plan for everything, especially in that, on that trip in particular, you know, it was like minus 55 the first few days. And so a lot of cold management and then other things kind of went sideways that kind of, uh, got me off the trip, but the other two guys finished the mission and, uh, yeah, it ended up being a more interesting story than had we just kind of, you know, daintily gone along and succeeded in, in kind of uh, retracing this John Ray route um, from uh, from Hudson Bay up to uh, up to uh, the Northwest Passage. So, um, yeah, uh, oftentimes, I mean, it's 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 painful, but that's where the good, you know, all good art comes from a dark, painful place. The really good stuff. It's well, uncomfortable, but it, but because you're you're pushing the edges of of comfort that that's where the real story is right that's that's where and that's where the camera the pops unexpected out. is always the great story so and that's where the camera pops out on our journey it's getting What's that? T- that that's where the camera pops out on our journey it's getting tough exactly. it's getting rough pop the camera yeah. out. it's true and that's i'd say like if 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 for any kind of a film the only stuff those those campsite and lunchtime shots are are garbage. You know, that's not going to make the final cut. Either your story or your film. You got to shoot when it's hard, and that and that's it. And you have to shoot when it's happening, not after the fact. So that's if anyone wants to be a filmmaker and have interesting film, at least at least in my eye, you've got to catch those those you know either those authentic moments, say like Taku laughing when he forgot my birthday, yes, or or real moments where you're kind of you know bushwhacking, you know through there and you're covered with mosquitoes and, and that sort of thing. You have to capture those kind of moments. And that's, that's kind of, uh, those are the moments that kind of, uh, the memorable, uncomfortable moments or the authentic moments are definitely what you want at the end of the day. Exactly. So that's how you started your career. Yeah. <laughs> Let's well, take the cost was a start. There's a nice, smooth 171 day trip. Uh, <laughs> but then the second one, the, 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 the West to East attempt, um, where I wanted to go purely along waterways, no poor. I mean, one thing I see about people, you know, doing these cross Canada canoe trips more and more and more, it's like, it seems like half the trip is by bike and by pulling your canoe on wheels. And at some point it's kind of like, is this a canoe trip or, or just like a, a walking or biking trip? Right? right. So there's all these claims about, about doing it. So I, I really had this kind of ethical purity about trying to go purely along the waterways, but you know, nature kicked my butt because of it, but at least I tried. And, and, uh, and that's a nice, that's the beautiful thing about Northern trips. You don't have the option to kind of step on a road and walk your stuff around. You have to work your way down and up rivers. You have to stay with the water and, and there's much more of a purity to do these kind of big roadless journeys in, in like, you know, Nunavut and Northwest territories, Northern Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, you know, there's definitely, you, you basically are, you're there on mother nature's terms and you have to work give with what, what she gives, what she gives you. And that, um, you don't have the easy out option like you do in Southern Canada. 
Exactly. I mean, the the rivers and that were the original highways, right? So exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so let's take a quick break here, and when we come back. We'll continue on uh, how the rest of your paddling career has taken off. We'll Sounds be, good. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Sean Rowley, and you're listening to Paddling Adventures Radio. To find out more about us, check out our website, paddlingadventuresradio.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Current and past episodes of our podcast can be downloaded or streamed from iTunes, Google Play, and the episode page of our website. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, we would love to hear from you. So drop us a line on Facebook or our website. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the show. This portion of the show is brought to you by Algonquin Outfitters. Algonquin Outfitters, providing quality Algonquin Park backcountry adventures for the entire family since 1961. Whether you want to get on the water for a day or a week, the friendly staff at Algonquin Outfitters can help you out. Find them online at algonquinoutfitters.com or visit one of their 12 locations. Algonquin Outfitters, your outdoor adventure store, with locations in Algonquin Park, Muskoka and Halliburton. Welcome back. For those just joining us, we are talking with Frank Wolf these days because it'd be weird if you were just joining us now because we're a podcast. (laughs) Doesn't matter. People might. We could be live. Could happen. (laughs) Yeah. We're live. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. We're talking with Frank Wolf. Um, Frank, I've got a couple other questions for you here because we've jumped all over the place. I, I don't even know why I do these these notes in order. your yeah, portfolio your is everywhere right yeah. it's just all over the board it's all willy-nilly yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so in the beginning you did your trips and stuff like that uh at the beginning it was always canada uh 2004 you did an 800 kilometer trip across scandinavia that was crossing asgard that's right across asgard i called that there was yep. a did a film on it and, or like, I guess it was an episode of TV show and also did, uh, it's also in my book as well. Yeah. We paddled basically from, uh, Bugness, which is the mouth of Tisfjord in Norway up to the end of the fjord, uh, over the mountains between, uh, Sweden and Norway. And then down the Lula river to the Gulf of Bothnia and then around the Gulf of Bothnia to Ulu, Finland. That was that journey. So, mm-hmm. And then in 2019, you did another 800 kilometers, this time through Finland. That's right. Yeah. So this is more just purely in the, uh, they call it Lakeland. So um, went up to a little village called Nermis, um, basically brought a folding canoe for that one, like a pack canoe, and uh, brought it on the plane and put it on the train, 800 kilometers from Helsinki up to this um this little town of Nermis put the assemble the canoe and then paddle back to Helsinki through Lakeland, which is kind of like if you look at it. The, the reason I went back to Finland is if you know if you scour a map of the globe and you want you know to paddle that kind of unique kind of resource of kind of interconnected lakes and rivers that the Canadian Shield offers. I mean, the only place you have that is of course you know three quarters of Canada as well as, you know, down into, you know, the Boundary Waters, uh, kind of area northern Minnesota. And then you have Finland, kind of that, that area along the Finnish kind of Russian border, where you also have that kind of, you know, metamorphic rock with um, interconnected kind of lakes and rivers. Um, just look at a map of the world. There's, that's, you can just see 
that's what it's like when you look at it. it looks like a mini Canada kind of thing in that kind of Lakeland region of Finland. But it's, of course, it's much more overall more populated than northern areas. Um, it's still very clean and everything, but, um, you know, there's working forestry in there, easy resupplies. It's pretty much like traveling, you know, with your canoe as your, your vehicle. And then um, every few days you'll hit a village. You can resupply with, you know, the usual, you know, cheese and, uh, you know, Finn crisp crackers, um, some muesli and, <laughs> you know, a couple of cans of beer and then move move on down the river kind of thing. So we ran into a little bit of white water towards the end there, but mostly because it is, you know, a lot of hydroelectric dams and stuff like that, right. you're not going to have, you know, a, the same kind of free-flowing, you know, resource like we do in northern Canada as much. But still beautiful, great way to travel, and the whole focus of that one, I'm a bit obsessed with saunas. So <laughs> right on. All the trip, the sauna land uh, tour, and we... We basically, there's all these public saunas along the way in these little communities or along the, the waterways. And then, so we just kind of map them out and we, we hit a whole bunch of them along the way. Um, and, and it's interesting with the Finns, they're, they're culturally, especially in, out in Helsinki, they're pretty, pretty friendly, outgoing. I have some friends that are friends for life now that, we, that I hung out in Helsinki with before and after the trip. Um, kind of the Swedish Finn. They're Swedish Finns. So about 20% of the, of the Finns in Helsinki are actually Swedish speakers. Uh, primarily, but then once you get outside into the country, they're very, I guess, standoffish, and it's a pretty typical Finnish trait. Like if they see you, they're not gonna. If you wave at them, they'll like turn away from you, or yeah. they'll, if you if you paddle towards them, they'll they'll kind of row. In, they don't really paddle canoes; they kind of row these little rowboats around more there. But yeah, they're very uh, standoffish, and you know they don't really aren't exactly w- welcoming and warm until you're in the sauna with them kind of when everyone takes their clothes off and you know literally all your your pretenses are gone then they're super friendly so in the sauna, that's where we connected with the Finns in the sauna with them that's their happy place that's their church and so we just spend you know a couple hours you know getting good sweat on jumping into the lake back in there having some good conversations with with the local Finnish people kind of that way so um yeah it was kind of very much a kind of a cultural experience but um, the reason I went there is kind of like, you know, the only other place that has this kind of like Canadian shield, like, you know, waterways, it was there. And I, I wanted to kind of run a line through it. And I'd done so many years in a row of of Canadian trips as I was kind of like, you know, slowly filling out the the, the lines on my map of, of Canada that I wanted to just a bit of a, a kind of a change of scenery. And I'm glad I did because I certainly would not be doing that trip in 2020 because of COVID. They, mm-hmm. you know, no anywhere right so i i managed to squeeze in a a little travel canoe trip in 2019 before uh you know who knows when we're going to get back there again but but it was great great cultural experience you know fabulous uh you know fabulous just and again you know we didn't pay for the one thing about about uh, scandinavia in particular they have this thing called you know every man's law and it basically means that anyone can camp anywhere within 50 meters of a structure right so even if private property or what have you you can still pop your tent down they're not hung up about, you know, people, you know, camping here and there and that sort of thing. So easy camping, um, easy resupply, um, you know, culturally interesting. The saunas were awesome. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a great, great experience for sure. And after your 2004 trip to Scandinavia, you went for a three-month trip uh, kayaking and whatnot through Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, um, total different country, total different type of paddling. 
Yeah, that was actually the year 2000, that one. Yeah. Was that 2000? Yeah, exactly. So we did that before the, the trip there. Yeah, myself and a buddy, uh, like Dave Stibby, who I worked with at the time, he he was he was in Ottawa, but I was still in Vancouver, and he called me up and said, hey, do you want to do this? I want to, I want to kayak from, from Phuket, Thailand, down to um, basically Bali. Right. And in a, in a kayak. And, and one reason was he wanted to kind of track down some of it. His dad was interned by the Japanese in World War II. And he wanted to kind of go back to the, the house that he was interned in, in, uh, okay. in Sumatra on the big island of, of uh, one of the big islands in Indonesia. So, so we, yeah, so we basically, that was the journey. And, and it, uh, yeah, kind of my first real travel paddling journey, we, Ended up paddling the west coast of Thailand. It was about 300 kilometers. Um, but once we got down to Malaysia at the time, there was a lot of action from pirates, especially for like, um, if you're like a little, just two guys in a kayak and up and down that whole straits of Malacca at the time, they were pretty notorious. So we decided then to kind of rejig our trip and we, we actually hopped on the, tr- you know, we had a folding kayak. And so we just hopped on the train down to Kuala Lumpur and ended up spending like a week whitewater paddling on a river, the Selangor river in, uh, just about an hour outside of Kuala Lumpur. Um, and then eventually we made our way across to Sumatra. We did track down Dave's father's kind of, you know, place he was interned. They used to intern them within the cities. They kind of would block off areas of cities and kind of, you know, let them fend for themselves basically when the Japanese were taken over Indonesia. And then, then we got down to, uh, to Java, we'd spent some time with a buddy of mine in Jakarta, and then in Java we started paddling again. We said, "Okay, let's do the west coast of Java, paddle across, paddle over to Bali." And of course, you know, within a couple of days, you know, we're we're coming in at night, you know, in the tropics, and at six o'clock it's dark, right? So we're trying to get into this beach before it goes pitch black on us, and it's kind of a heavy shore break. And it's the in Java is like a, an island of 130 million people. Oh. Um, in one island but this one island it's like 800 square kilometers this one park it's the only unpopulated area of java that we're going around and then coming in this heavy shore break you know big swell as we're coming in this big wave is coming in and about to pound us on the beach it just passes underneath us we paddle really hard before the next one comes but the suck back pretty much held us in place the next wave took us pitch pulled us boom right into this heavy surf exploded the wooden frame of the kayak and we're kind of scrambling around getting everything in there and then we're we're basically stuck about a a three-day walk in the farthest reaches of this Ujong Kulong National Park um on this you know long kind of (laughs) beach (laughs) and uh we kind of look at the map and say oh man I remember I had a a copy of Moby Dick that I was reading (laughs) and and it basically because it got saturated with water it turned into like a New York Times telephone book size completely like a giant xylophone and so i buried that in the beach so there's a moby dick buried deep in that beach (laughs) ironically but um but then yeah we basically packed up the because the kayak was a loner we couldn't just abandon it um we had to take it out it's expensive those ones so we basically lugged our gear like 18 kilometers the next day across this beach remember at one point we had to cross this river with that kind of ran, cut the beach in half, and we we're like, you know, neck deep crossing this river. Um, and then I, you know, it was about a hundred, a couple hundred feet across the river, and I went, I went up the river to get, you know, some water, you know, keep going until it wasn't, I was tasting it just because I didn't want to drink brackish water, and got water from there. We kind of purified it, and then we kept on going. 
And then night came, of course, by the time we hit the jungle and this kind of little trail. And I kind of was quite a bit ahead of my, my buddy Dave, who decided for some reason to walk barefoot. And then he kind of hurt one of his arches. So he was kind of hobbling along at this point. Um, and then uh, get through the jungle part, just, just getting dark. And, and I'm kind of uh, looking... You know, we got, we were waiting for Dave and I'm, I'm kind of setting a tent up. I go, what the heck is like, and there's like the tent poles are not there. So we've gone like 18 or 20 K and Dave, Dave comes eventually goes, Oh my God, Frank, you wouldn't believe what happened. I said, uh, Dave, man, the tent poles are missing. Do you have the tent poles? And I, and I, and I also already, I was starting to kind of, uh, get a little bit of diarrhea, I think from the water I drank on that river. And so then Dave, Dave goes into the story and said, Frank, there's a leopard. There's a leopard. I said, what do you mean a leopard? I said, it, it was stalking me on the trail. And then, and he, so he kind of goes on to explain to me that, you know, all he had was like the light of his headlamp coming through this dark jungle, you know, towards this little opening where we eventually camped down. And uh, he hears this suddenly, he heard this kind of guttural kind of like, this kind of growl coming out of the darkness and he kind of just freezes. And then the next thing he knows just for a second, jumping right into his headlamp beam was this leopard. And it stopped for a beat, looked at him and boom, sprang into the darkness again. And he's like, oh shit, you know, this is like, where the hell is the thing? So then the rest of the time he walked, basically had both of his hands around his neck because he'd read that leopards usually go and try to snap your neck. So he had both (laughs) of his hands around his neck as he (laughs) kind of collapsed arch through the jungle like a wounded animal and eventually got to me. So... Uh, but then we did turn, we didn't have the poles, you know, we'd left them back at the campsite somehow or dropped them or it had, go- they'd gone awry anyway. So we basically strung up the, the tent from the, um, the branches and the trees around us. Um, and, uh, I mean, one thing about, one thing about Dave is that he traveling with that guy, if his head wasn't attached to his body, you know, <laughs> uh, he would lose it. I mean, we had... <laughs> Uh, but I'll, I'll talk about some of that after this story. But um, basically, so we're setting up the tent. There's all these hundreds of fireflies, I remember, in the jungle. So it's all lit with fireflies kind of dancing everywhere in the jungle. And um, we're both kind of tent, and I've, I've got, like, a bit of diarrhea. And I'm, I'm kind of like – so I took a Ciproflax, and I popped that just to kind of stop things from running anymore. And I'm going out getting some sticks to act as pegs to kind of peg down the corner of the tent. And I'm looking around, and I – my eye just kind of catches, you know, with my headlamp, there's this two really big round fireflies that aren't moving at all <laughs> on the edge of the opening rat. And then I'm kind of like looking and I kind of scan my headlamp over there and they're crouched in the bushes just staring like straight at me. It's like the big head of a leopard just <laughs> looking at me from like 20 feet away. And then by that time, me and Dave were so tired and I'd been, had diarrhea. I was almost like I just kind of walked backwards away from the leopard so i didn't turn my back on it and just said hey dave your your leopard friend is back and he said well what can we do i said yeah what can we do so we just zipped ourselves inside the tent because it's a malaria zone and just kind of fell asleep and never saw the leopard again but um so the next day we get out another half day of walking and we happen upon this like little encampment of these these indonesian rangers who actually stay there and the reason they were there is that uh, Ujang Kulon is the home of the last 60 of the Javanese rhino. It's an endangered species, and they're there to protect it from poachers. So they do patrols in the park to make sure that people aren't going in there with guns to get these rhinos and their, their horns. 
Um, and they kind of said, oh, where'd you guys come from? And, and we explained it and we explained that we, we crossed this river, the, the Chickalessic, and they were going, oh, no. And so what? What? I said, crocodiles. And so apparently, saltwater <laughs> crocodiles up and down this river, and we're just like neck deep, crossing it 200 feet in the middle of the beach. You know, ignorance is bliss once again in those <laughs> early <laughs> And, um, but uh, yeah, they kind of say, yeah, there's, it's another probably day of walking. But I remember they fed us like, I drank like 20 cups of tea and I was so dehydrated. I didn't even have to pee after that. So we just hung out with those guys and, uh, you know, and they just kind of pointed the trail of, to the, to the next village it was like a day and a half away. And so we, we walked in there probably half day until we got to this bay and I saw a fishing boat and I kind of went in waist deep and waved it down. It came in, I paid the guy like five bucks and he took us into town, saved us a day of walking, but that was the, uh, the crashing of the boat. And then we became kind of tourists because our boat was wrecked and we, uh, you know, we, we then biked around Bali, you know, did some surfing and that's, and then eventually that's the story of Dave being the, the guy who loses things is that, we basically went from Bali, you know, we spent, uh, you know, spent a week there. And then we went, took the, the three hour ferry from Bali back to Java, went all the way across Java, all the way back to this town called Solo, where we wanted to hike this volcano. I remember we get to Solo, this is like, you know, two days of travel. And we get to the, the, the guest hostel. And, you know, the guy says, Oh, you know, um, passport, uh, please. So Dave digs around and like, he's like, Oh, I don't, and this is the second time this has happened on the trip. And he digs around. He goes, oh, shoot. I left my passport and my plane tickets and everything under the mattress in the guest house in Bali. Oh. <laughs> and I said, well, Dave, I'll see you in Jakarta in a week. So <laughs> oh, goes, two days of travel all the way back to Bali. Luckily, his tickets and his passport were indeed underneath that um, that uh, that uh, that mattress. But then... I guess the beginning of the story, which I totally glossed over, was in Thailand, of course. The first time this sort of thing happened is like literally, I think, two days into our trip, we kind of land on this beautiful island in, in kind of the, the classic kind of limestone islands in, in, in Thailand there on this beautiful beach. There's like a little a little just like local, you know, not, not developed at all, just like a little thatch hut serving beer. And there were some, a, a couple of, you know, uh, locals there and... Um, and we found this awesome beach. We kind of, we kind of uh, pull in there, and then Dave again. He's scuttling around, scuttling around, and, and he goes, "My passport, my plane tickets, my my money belt, they're gone." And I go, "What, Stevie? Where are they?" And then we kind of backtracked. And at lunchtime that day, we'd stopped on this island, um, and we climbed in these. There's these huge kind of caves in this island, and these big bamboo kind of um you know rods that people climb up to get into the caves and look around and there was one guy kind of in a hammock swinging there but it's kind of abandoned and and so we kind of crept around these caves pulled our kayaks up on the beach and then we kind of left and i was kind of going and he had no idea where it was it was somewhere between you know two days ago and then and i was like instead of being helpless and just saying well you're screwed stibby i just kind of you know at dusk i kind of flagged down a long tail boat he came in and got me and i said take me out to this island and he said okay and just kind of kept going kept going kept going and we get within like about 100 meters of this island and he goes no 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 i'm not going there bang 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 i said what do you mean i, I have to get to this i have to check the beach out here for the for the wallet if it's there and he goes no no bang bang and apparently it was a bird nest island and it's kind of very highly coveted they almost it's almost like a a bit of a almost like a organized 
crime that controls these islands. They sell this bir these bird nests to the Chinese for, to make bird's nest soup. It's very exotic. It's worth a lot of money, so they guard these islands with. So if locals or people go on there, they could potentially be shot, which we had no idea as we kind of blindly poked our way around these caves and stuff like that. So, so the guy made me swim in from his boat like 100 meters in the darkness down to this beach, and I was just, this is my only shot. And then I, I kind of go to where the kayak was that we we parked that afternoon and they're kind of hanging there was like one dead tree that just kind of hanging in the in the in the shallows and they're just about an inch above the rising tide was dave's passport uh money belt wallet everything kind of there just complete fluke shot in the dark got it so we went back and then i remember coming back and dave was just sitting on the beach kind of totally bummed and he was just going uh just kind of looking at me, expecting nothing, and I kind of go up, and he goes, yeah, "Any luck?" I said, "No, sorry, Dave." I said, yeah, I figured not. <laughs> just kidding. And Dave just says, "Whoa, beers on me!" And so we got ferociously drunk that night. <laughs> in the uh, and I remember there's some crazy video of me like basically the entire you know locals of ten people. It was them against me in like arm wrestling matches, like crazy drunk and. <laughs> Oh, right right. for like money something out of like you know uh like you know uh, uh deer hunter or something like that right so <laughs> but um yeah that's another good stibby story and both those stories are in the book lines in the map so there's your segue yeah so <laughs> the one thing i do have have to ask when i go on a canoe trip here in canada going to the north something like that I can sort of predict if something happens, I can do this. If something happens, I can do that sort of thing. But that's here in Canada where I know. How do you sort of, what's your mindset when, when you guys, you know, had the, the wrecked kayak? What happened when you were out there? Like, how did your thought process change as if, if instead of that happening here at home? somewhere where you totally weren't it's like, like the logistics of events and so here you know you can call 911 here in the u.s you know like 911 or you know how to talk to people you know you know communication barrier you know that you know there's a relatively equal amount of uh u.s canada for hospital stays and and all that stuff but over there it's like i can't even i don't even have the concept of of trying to figure out the logistics and the languages and so you'd be i'd be totally off balance i couldn't do it hmm. yeah i think i think it's i think it's just still travel i mean i, I look at canoe trip traveling as well i mean and really i mean even if you have a plb or or whatever you know it's still a shot in the dark whether they're going to find you sometimes um 911 is not going to help you in in nunavut um true, but, uh, true. yeah and I, I yeah i think it's just uh you get used to anything it's like I mean, there's objective dangers, you know, in in the far north, you know, cold water, there's white water, you know, you could, you could break a leg, you could have a bad encounter with a polar bear, all sorts of things like that. But yeah, I, th I think my mindset doesn't really change. It's just more the curiosity of, of traveling in a, in a new environment. I mean, that's why all my canoe trips are kind of different, um, just because I like the, the adventure of the newness of everything, right? So, and traveling is the same thing. I think it's the same, it's really the same mindset. I don't think it's any any different really um yeah it's, it's exciting when things are different you know that's kind of like getting out of your comfort zone i mean you know it's a, the old cliche you know life begins outside your comfort zone and and that's that's kind of where you really learn and expand as a human being when you kind of put yourself 
in those situations, different cultures. And, and really, if you look at humanity in general, you know, you know, whether whether you even if your politics are different or you live in a different country, I think all people can find, you know, commonalities among each other. Um, I think most humans at their at their core, if you're talking to them straight up, they're, they're good people. And it's the same thing when you're traveling in Indonesia, they may speak a different language. But if you have like, you know, a phrase book and a little bit of charades, you're amazed, you'd be amazed what you can kind of, you know, do and, and the people there are incredibly friendly and helpful and, and um, just like they are in the north and just like they are kind of anywhere. So um, I found even, even like whether it be travel or even if, if like with on the line dealing with issues like, you know, a pipeline. I, I connected equally as well with guys who are working up in the tar sands as I was with, you know, uh, fishing guides on the Skeena River. You know, they're maybe on opposite sides of the fence with regards to the pipeline. But as human beings kind of, you know, you know, straight up, you know, we connected and, and we we appreciated each other. And, and uh, everyone who lives anywhere on Earth is kind of they have their own little patch of of, of dirt that they they live within and they have a certain way of living and they're all raising their families in different ways. And one person from one side of the fence might not agree with the other, but you, you can always have that commonality. And that's the same with if you're traveling in Indonesia or if you're traveling in, in like Europe, or if you're traveling in, in North America, I think as long as you have that kind of openness to listen to people and be curious about their opinion, whatever it is, I think it's always going to be a good conversation and preach. And like when I've interviewed people for films, and sometimes controversial subjects. I, I've never asked. I always had people for the CBC films I did. I always had them uh, sign a waiver afterwards to allow them to be their face to be shown on film, like as part of the interview. And I, I've never had a person not sign the waiver afterwards um, uh, because they weren't comfortable with my line of questioning. So I just try to ha be very open and curious, and not not challenge their point of view. Just listen to their point of view, and and let that point of view be on the film or be in the written story. And I think that 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 uh, applies to anywhere you go so if you have that kind of like openness and curiosity you know in any country on earth in terms of paddling or traveling uh it, it all it, there is a commonality that kind of you know i think any canoe tripper from canada could kind of you know ease into that life out there on the, on the water in any country right uh you have been to many many places small trips long trips easy trips difficult trips is there a trip or a river or anything that is number one on your bucket list to do that you still want to do? Um, yeah, I don't really have any bucket lists per se. They kind of evolves. Like the reason I usually, um, I usually leave myself until February or March to kind of do a trip is that I, I leave myself open to, you know, possibilities. Like if I hear something or if my research or if, if it's, if an, if it's an interesting, say story layer, then that will kind of lead me to an area to kind of, you know, journey through um, when you have that extra kind of, you know, layer or whatever. So, um, yeah, I kind of leave myself. I, I don't really have a, a bucket list necessarily of, of rivers per se. Um, if you look at my, my North American lines in the map, I'll, I'll basically link together a whole bunch of different river and lake systems on my journeys. I rarely just do a river. It'll be usually multiple rivers and many lakes that all kind of connect together, but they're more... I'm not there for the lake or the river necessarily. I'm there for the journey to kind of take me through an area I haven't been before. So right. yeah, there's no particular um, like body of water per se that I, I, I'm targeting, but I'll probably get there just by accident because the, the planned journey will bring me through somehow. <laughs> right. So, yeah. 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 It's not really a bucket list for me. It's more like just something that 
that appeals to my curiosity. So even this this Ellesmere Island trip that like last year uh, I did that um, I did a sea kayak trip from Squamish up to Prince Rupert, um, and that was kind of a last minute journey uh, that I did with a last minute you know a buddy of mine a partner because a, a trip up in Ellesmere Island had fallen through. But the reason I was going to Ellesmere Island. It wasn't just to ski a random route in Ellesmere Island. It was to basically ski along something called the Northwater Polinia, which is this big kind of open water area between Greenland and Ellesmere Island. And we were actually going to do some water testing along the way, kind of citizen science for the University of Manitoba, just to see how you know climate change uh, may have affected the Polinia over time. And then, of course, the whole adventure of it is to ski along this edge where you see this amazing amount of like, narwhals and uh and polar bears and all these kind of, you know, amazing, you know, large mammals you have up in, in the north too. So it's kind of a multi-layered, uh, it's, it's got to be some sort of a mission kind of involved or, or a story layer in there to kind of, you know, bring me to an area, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, you did see polar bears this, uh, I guess, last summer. Exactly. Uh, you, well, what, you went up the, the Churchill, Barrington and Seal Rivers? That's right. We went uh, started in Sandy Bay, Saskatchewan, and so that's right on the Churchill system. And then, so basically, had a buddy uh, from Saskatoon. We just kind of flew into Saskatoon. Uh, he drove like seven hours up um, for the very long shuttle, and then dropped us off there. And then we just started paddling. And then Churchill, um, and then through an area called Eden, kind of this Eden Lake, and then up the Barrington River into the uh over the the divide into the south seal and the seal river to hudson bay so and then we did see like in the last basically the last day was when we saw our first bears we saw 15 polar bears up close um in the last kind of the last day and then the last couple of days while we we're waiting for a pickup at the shelter cabin at the mouth of the seal river um yeah we saw like a mother and cub working there like 12k upstream we saw our first mother and cub they were basically working their way upstream against you know a very high water seal river and then against a headwind just kind of cruising up and then uh we rambled on down and once we got to the cabin then waiting there for a couple of days the bears kind of came to us right so yeah um, it's a well-placed shelter cabin i mean the one reason there's so many bears at the mouth of the seal is that there's this you know amazing long tidal shelf on uh on Hudson Bay that uh, goes about 7k out and when it when the tide goes out it goes out super fast and so you know you know uh basically one inch of water is like 100 feet it goes out right it's, it's very very long shallow tidal flats there and there's all these hundreds and hundreds of lugas that kind of congregate there uh, feeding on the fish in that area and when the tide goes out fast they'll on a regular basis get stranded in the tide flats. So the bears have like a, you know, easy pickings as far as, you know, a nice meal in the, uh, the off ice season there. So, so they're, um, they're everywhere there. And then uh, we had parked our canoe beside the cabin at one point. And then this one bear, these three bears kind of rolled up. I remember um, my friend Shauna, who I was with on the trip, she was out back taking a, taking a pee. And I, I kind of, I kind of saw these three bears coming in, pretty pretty focused on the cabin right down the seal so i could see you know they were there and they had some intent and so i went back and say shauna and she goes hey i'm taking a taking a pee i said well, well you, you might want to finish up quick because there's three bears coming in hot right now so that <laughs> so you quickly quickly cut the message so you go in the cabin and, and these bears are right away they're two of them were less interested but then this one younger one 
it it went right for the canoe started like jumping up and down on it and then started chewing on it like chewing on one end and i was banging on the window there's a video i have out on on my youtube channel you can see it there um and but i'm banging on i say don't chew on the canoe and and a bad bear kind of like <laughs> kind of like channeling timothy treadwell from grizzly man <laughs> and, uh and so the, it it wouldn't leave my the canoe alongside. So had to roll out there with uh, with a shotgun and just fired. You know, from it was like twenty feet away from me, just fired like three warning shots over its head. So it and the other two bears kind of scurried away a couple of hundred feet, and they just kind of almost like they pretended they were sleeping for a little while there, just kind of like one eye on us. And then you know, I took some photos of them and that sort of thing, and then uh, went back and they kind of started getting up and around again. We went back inside the cabin, and the bear came back again for the canoe to to try to you know chew a hole in it and then so i had to go out with this time with a bear banger and just kind of launch that off and that then they all um took off up the river so um <laughs> yeah so saw like 15 bears in the course of a couple of days there um even on the way out they're like this guy jack batstone who built the cabin he's been picking people up there for 30 years at the mouth of the seal and he was waiting out there in his boat and we had to paddle out to him and there are like dozens of belugas all over the place and like three polar bears, you know, swimming, you know, 50 feet off of our, off of our canoe as we're paddling out to them. And we thought, holy cow, this is, this is crazy. This is just an amazing, you know, interaction. Meanwhile, Jack's just kind of there, you know, totally bored for him. It's like seeing like birds and squirrels mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and we're just kind of coming in. Have you seen this many? He's like, yeah, so it is around here. Kind of thing. It's just like, for him, it's just like the everyday and we're just being blown away by these kind of, you know, apex predator interactions but no it's pretty cool spot like an amazing congregation of of wildlife at the mouth of the seal there for sure them there city slickers yeah um what that's all i think well got a couple other things you you wanted to mention a couple things i, there, I wanted there. to ask so uh, it was uh it was you were you mentioned it earlier you used the word anthropomorph anthropomorphize you can say the word better than I can. Anyways, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I've, one of the things is, uh, so I, I had watched the movie before, but I was uh, watching uh, Katariak. I think that I said that right, Katariak. Yeah. So yeah. I was watching that with uh, the wife and the kids the other day. And uh, so we're sitting there, it was coming towards the end. And uh, so I always knew it was coming. So I was watching to see what would happen. And uh, <laughs> and it's, it's at the very end of very end of the show. And uh, you're, you're reaching your destination. And... Uh, and Malina the mosquito, who's your narrator the whole time, uh, yep. was Bree Frazier is the voice. So he joined us, joined us on the on the in the canoe the whole way. Yeah, she, so she narrated the whole thing, and you know, <laughs> they, she she just Frank's doing this today, and so the whole thing, and she gave the history of the areas, and uh, but at the very end, she goes, okay, well, Frank's journey's over, and. Now I'm just gonna I'm gonna get some uh, energy to to go fly back home and just another thirty seconds and she's uh, draining your blood and you just reach over and you slap her and then yeah. the narration cuts off dead and <laughs> so my wife and the kids are like what <laughs> he just killed the narrator and everybody <laughs> laughed but it was just this it, it just kind of succinctly put a put a point on it or the the whole narration and the whole thing the Molina the mosquito and it was i think it was just a, uh, a very poignant moment in in the whole video that uh, to just kind of tie it all up i thought yeah. it was very interesting it was it was a genius stroke to uh to have a mosquito as part of because that's what you're dealing with the whole time up there is have a mosquito yeah, narrate your story yeah the mosquito 
you know, very kind of very, you know, like a very like soft female voice. I mean, the mosquitoes that drink your blood are female, so I have to have a female narrator. <laughs> um, my friend Bree, and then um, and uh, yeah, I just kind of have her narrate the whole thing and bring in some mosquito perspective along the way, but also kind of get the audience connected to the narrator, almost like feel feel empathy uh, for the mosquito like like i said anthropomorphize the uh, the mosquito you know and then at the end of course as anyone would do with a mosquito that lands on their arm you know smack there goes melina um <laughs> and i, I kind of made myself the disembodied almost like charlie brown adult there um <laughs> and the, the mosquito was the real human at that point but um yeah so that's just kind of the, the kind of scenes that you think of in the canoe all day that's the beautiful thing about of, of creative filmmaking where you can kind of bring in these elements, these artistic elements of storytelling um, that you think of. You can only think of these things in the canoe because the, the mosquitoes are all around you and you kind of think of these little things that come into your mind and you just kind of, you film them. Why not? We'll see how, how it happens. And it seemed like the perfect ending, right? The perfect exit for that, that, um, that narrator in that, that film. And speaking of creative bits, it, it had to have been thought of in the canoe is when you're doing all the snap, da- the snaps, and oh yes, oh, it's like the, the A team, the opening for the A team, <laughs> but clicking yeah. everything together and then tapping the beaners together yeah, for a song. Oh, and- I can't remember what you called the dance. Uh, I called it was that the uh, Nunavik dance because we we crossed from uh, Nunatsiavut, uh, Inuit Labrador, into Inuit Quebec, Nunavik. So that yeah. was that was our our, our border yeah. dance. Todd was playing yeah. the harmonica and you were playing the carabiners and exactly. and, that, and that was just like that that tune was just something that like got into my head this kind of this kind of beat this tick 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 yeah tick, tick. and it just got in my head and then I said oh let's do a little let's just do a whole whatever makes these clicking sounds which everyone has you know carabiners and 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 belt buckles and zippers and that make little clicking clacking sounds in our in our gear bags just kind of turn that turn that into the into the drum beat so. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, again, one of these things, especially when you're dragging a canoe for several hundred kilometers across the Labrador Plateau, you've got lots of time to think. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you got anything else there? I do. I have a follow-up thing. So I'm curious. There's a, So when you and Taku d- did your journey through north of the 51st parallel or whatever, uh, so you guys were coming across the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And you came across a bottle hidden in the woods. It was it was just a message in the bottle moment. Uh, so I just I so tell us about that. And the follow up question would be to Did you ever reach out to these people or do any research on these people? Yeah. So that that was uh, when we were uh, earlier on the trip, like probably maybe a week and a half in. We'd kind of come come from Winnipeg uh, down the, uh, the the Red River into Lake Winnipeg and then um, up the Bird River and then into Woodland Caribou. So we're working our way through Woodland Caribou at this point. And uh, yeah, there was no portage on this one particular zone between lakes. Um, so we were just kind, of, just kind of, you know, bashing through with the canoe. And then just kind of just before we got to the lake, just in the duff, there was this, you know, half buried, you know, bottle of Shenley you know, empty Shenley whiskey bottle and looked inside and there was like a Dumarier, uh, you know, cigarette wrapper with a little message scrawled on it. And so this, this would have been in 2007, we did the trip. And so just about four, so reading the bottle inside, it said, you know, um, 
uh, Bill E. something and Harry Harvey uh, celebrating uh, 50 days on trip, July, uh, I think like 6th or 7th, 1967. So about 40 years to the day, these guys had polished off this bottle of whiskey on a, a on day 50 of obviously a long, long canoe trip. And so, yeah, I just kind of randomly found, I, I kept the bottle. So I, I, I it's kind of like cleaning garbage up out of the, I mean, some people consider that an artifact, but back in 1967, it would have been considered garbage. So we cleaned the garbage out of there and I have it on my mantle here at home. Um, it's a nice, nice little memento of the time. And, um, but yeah, never, I did look up the guys, but it, it was, uh, yeah, inconclusive. That was, that, I haven't looked it up since 2007 or eight when I was cutting the film, just kind of, uh, at the time, maybe there's been a, a deeper Google search for these guys. I'd have to, I think Harry Harvey and Bill, uh, just uh, says Bill E in your book. Yeah, Bill E. So it wasn't doesn't it was kind of faded, so you couldn't see the whole name. And then, uh, yeah, so never never did track these guys down, but I, I did do a shout out to them in the film, and we did uh, celebrate with our own whiskey alongside them, celebrate the boys of of yesterday. And yeah, even that it kind of it kind of shows. I think a lot of time, like people think a fifty day trip now is a big deal. Back then, it was pretty normal. Like mm -hmm. people just do trips. I think there's even a stat that uh, these days when people are recreating, you know, be it hiking or canoeing or kayaking or anything, their average trip these days is about, you know, two days, um, like weekend warrior kind of stuff. But back in the 1970s, like the average, you know, summer trip would be 10 days. And that was just normal. So people used to just be out there for a lot longer time. So even with all the, I think what we have nowadays, people have less time and, and better equipment. Back then they had more time and maybe the equipment was good, but it shows you that time is more important than equipment. You know, yeah, um, exactly. And, yes, and and do your kind of thing like like Bill and Harry would have done it, and and that was also in 1967. I think there was an especially big rush of of canoe tripping that year because of the the centennial. centennial of Canada. Yeah, mm -hmm. they had a whole new race across Canada that year, and people were just doing big epic, you know, summer trips in the summer of '67 just to celebrate, you know, this Canadian heritage of canoeing. So, uh, which Bill and Harry obviously were doing too. So. Yeah, it's a pretty fascinating story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You love seeing yeah. stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah, it's hard. It, it, find these kind of rare kind of, you know, artifacts or whatever in the middle of the woods. They're, they're out there. Um, and it just, t t it's the kind of thing you just kind of happen upon, you know? So it's it's it's, it's completely uh, unexpected, but uh, yeah, kind of a, a, a treat and an honor to find that in the middle of the woods. Unexpected, but welcome. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Lines on a Map is your book. It is, and yeah. A very, very good book, Unparalleled Adventures in Modern Exploration. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you can find this at Amazon Chapters. Um, yeah, it should be available like everywhere online. Um, if anyone wants, wanted ever to get an autographed copy, you can always contact me, um, directly. I, I did that over Christmas time and sold a whole bunch of them to people who wanted like, um, it made out to, you know, their father or grandmother or whatever kind of mm -hmm. thing. I do a little personal note, you know, the whole shebang shebang. And then, um, yeah, so you can always contact me at like gravywolf at gmail.com if people want a, a copy like that. But otherwise it's available, yeah, in most online and also in Indigo chapters and places like that. So um, also a lot of local bookstores like um, independent bookstores uh, carry them as well. So, and then any, any, any bookshop could order it in if your local bookstore doesn't have it. So they can order it from uh, Rocky mountain books who are the publisher. 
And if you want to pick up a copy of the only book Derek's ever read. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He he finished the book, so it must be a good book. Yes. Yeah. Or he tells you he finished it anyways, right? It it could have been his kids reading it (laughs) and saying, here's what happens, Dad. You can quiz me on it. I read it. We'll quiz you on it. There'll be a quiz after the show. Yeah. And that that book is like, it's it's a, a kind of balance. There's 24 chapters and so... 12 of the chapters are on various canoe journeys. So I kind of alternate a canoe journey with then say a kayak journey, a canoe journey, then say a cycling journey, a canoe journey with say uh, a rowing journey. So kind of have that kind of ebb and flow of, but all kind of self-propelled in all kind of different parts of, you know, North America, Europe, and Asia. So that's kind of the, uh, and then the map at the front of the book is essentially the table of contents. All these lines on this map are your table of contents. And that's what each story kind of relates to. So, yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any other books in the works down the road that we can? I'm working on one right now, but it's it's so early stages. It's like it doesn't even exist, really. But uh, I kind of wrote a rough copy of a book, like 120,000 words. But I just I don't it just didn't speak to me in the end. So I don't know if that'll ever even see the light of day. But um, and that was basically based on three. You can tell me if it's a good idea, but it was basically based on three expeditions I did in the course of a year, like two winter ski trips and then that trip down the back river um it's kind of like call it, it basically three expeditions in the life in between is kind of the the idea, idea concept but then after this past summer is kind of the covid thing where i had to do all this kind of switching and 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 uh all this kind of you know uh pivoting as everyone's pivoting these days to kind of get these trips to happen and still be responsible and all that sort of thing just showing you that can, you know adventure can happen you know if you if you if you look for it in whatever you know area you are and whatever kind of restrictions you're under, there's always a way to somehow get your little adventure if it's little or bigger or whatever. So yeah, um, yeah, there's there's definitely kind of a strong message in there and it's very fresh fresh in my mind too. So um, yeah, that might be one I'm more. That's one I've, I've I've been kind of pitching out as an idea more recently. It just seemed a bit more cohesive than than the one I had before. The other one one I had before I could always circle back to, but this one just seems like it's got. It's much more compact. It's got a lot more layers in it, which I like in a story, you know? Yeah. Well, you throw yeah. some pictures in there and Derek's your man. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I get to go to a coffee table book. Yeah. <laughs> I did actually have an idea for a book because I've written probably like a thousand haikus ever since. Well, Taku, that in 2007, the Borealis trip, Taku's the guy who got me into writing haikus. Of course, Taku would do his haikus in Japanese in his, in his little art book there. But then I started writing, you know, the old 575 that would capture the essence of the day or moment of the day. Ever since then, every single trip I've done since 2007, I have a daily haiku. And I was thinking about doing almost like a combination haiku and photo book. So have kind of like uh, a photo and then a haiku that relates to that photo. And mm-hmm. just do like, you know, get the best of the best, the best haikus with the best photos and and put it into a little little coffee table, but a little limited run kind of uh you know, uh, coffee table books. So that, that was an idea I'm also playing with. So I think just that'd be brilliant. Kind of a fun project. Yeah. One of those desktop calendars, haiku and picture. There you go. Day. That's an idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good idea. There you go. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll give you a uh, 10% of the profits just for that idea. There you go. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, what else we got? You got anything to add there, Frank? Um, let's see. Um, the only thing I got uh, left is where to find you. Where to find me. 
yeah, you can find me on Instagram, like at frankwolf70, uh, fwolf.ca for my very basic website, but it's got all my stuff on there. Um, and yeah, so that's uh, a couple of couple of avenues to follow me along. I also have, if you go to uh, Way of the Wolf on Explore Magazine, I've got a blog. Uh, so stories from the last, uh, you know, three or three or four years, mm -hmm. um, all sorts of adventure stuff in there, kind of a bit more, kind of more snippets with video and stuff in there. So you can find me on Explore, Explore Mag, um, you know, their online website there. Uh, also, all the, like, the, the movies and stuff we've been watching, I've got them up on YouTube. So if you go, like, Frank Wolf YouTube, you'll find it. Um, you can watch, you know, the films you were mentioning today, like Katuriak and Mammalian and Borealis. They're all up there for people to watch uh, watch for free now. So that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, something to keep people entertained during the, I guess, the, the, the various lockdowns that are happening across the country right now. Eh? So <laughs> I, I would definitely um, encourage people, and we're probably going to put links to these on our, our Facebook page and that. Great, um, great. So like yeah, like like I say, there's Mammalian, Borealis, Katuriak on the line, The Hand of Franklin. Like yeah, definitely uh, put links to those and give people something to watch. It's definitely good. Yeah, and I think everyone who's listening, like this, this lockdown is going to end. The the it the uh, the the COVID will go away, and you know we'll all be adventuring as we were before, um, and we'll just appreciate it that much more because of the, this time uh, where we haven't been able to travel you know, free and easy like we have in the past. So, but exactly. uh, it'll make that much sweeter when it comes back. So. Be able to run around and touch people. Exactly. Imagine that. You've yeah. been warned about that, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There are limits, right? <laughs> that's more than a hug. Or something, yeah. yeah. Here's Frank agreeing with you. The guy that's sitting in saunas naked with strangers. Exactly. <laughs> Finland. Like, uh, unitards with a thong up my butt. There you go. <laughs> Uh, you got anything else, Derek? I just wanted to thank Frank for for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's uh, it's nice to have you on. It's nice to hear you talk about it. I feel like it's, uh, from reading your book and looking at a lot of your YouTube videos, I feel like I know you. So it's mm -hmm. uh, it's really cool to have a conversation. Yeah, so. great. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been uh, it's been fun. Well, thank you very much uh, for coming on, Frank. And uh, hopefully, this won't be the last time you're on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'll come back anytime. Excellent. Uh, if you want to find out more about us, you can find us at paddlingadventuresradio.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Player FM, and all your favorite podcast downloading sites. Go to the episode page at paddlingadventuresradio.com and find all 257 episodes. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with all your friends. Uh, we will, on our Facebook page, post a whole bunch of stuff about... Uh, Frank uh, and where you can find all his stuff. Go out and buy Lines on a Map by Frank Wolf. Do it now. Order <laughs> while you're listening. You got your computer up. Do it. <laughs> I want to thank everybody for listening this week. I'm Sean Rowley. And I'm Dirk's Best. We'll see you next time.